Уважаемые дамы и господа, the following is a conversation with Michael Malice, his fifth time on this, the Lex Friedman podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It is, in fact, the best way to support this podcast. First is Fight Camp, a punching bag I use at home for boxing workout. Second is Linode, Linux virtual machines. Third is Magic Spoon, low-carb, keto-friendly cereal. Fourth is Some Basket, healthy meal delivery service. And fifth is ExpressVPN, the VPN I've been using for many years. So the choice is exercise, Linux, food, or privacy. Choose wisely, my friends. And now, on to the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out the sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will, too. This show is brought to you by Fight Camp, a freestanding punching bag I use and you can use at home to get a great boxing workout. Hitting this bag is one of my favorite high-intensity full-body workouts. When I originally heard about Fight Camp, my first concern was not that I'm Mike Tyson or anything, but I do like to hit the bag pretty hard. <laughs> so my concern was if it's standing on the, you know, on the floor and I'm hitting it and it's at home, it's gonna move around all over the place. But they have this, I think they call it patented technology, but it's just pretty cool setup where the bag does move within its uh, circle base, but the base prevents it from moving all around the room. They actually have videos of uh, professional boxers, like heavyweight boxers hitting it hard. And I hit it hard and it, it moves, but it doesn't move across the floor, so it stays in its place. Anyway, Fight Camp uses new tech that tracks each punch you throw to measure speed, volume, and output so you can follow your progress, push yourself, compete on the community leaderboard, and challenge others, or do you versus you on the new versus mode. That's like poetry, you versus you. Yeah, I, I haven't actually done any of the competition against others, but uh, it's been me versus me, which is your greatest enemy. They say it's great for kids too. You can uh, pay for your fight camp over 24 months for less than the cost of a boxing gym and get it right away. Plus, fight camp offers free shipping with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash lex. To get free shipping on fight camp, go to joinfightcamp.com slash lex. Joinfightcamp.com slash lex. This episode is also brought to you by Linode. Linux Virtual Machines. It's an awesome compute infrastructure that lets you develop, deploy, and scale what applications you build faster and easier. This is both for small personal projects and huge systems. Lower cost than AWS, but more important to me is the simplicity, quality of customer service, the human touch with real humans, 24-7, 365. I've said many, many times before how much I love Linux, how much I love compute infrastructure. I love infrastructure in a digital space because that is the thing that makes the world run. I think in my conversation with Elon, he mentions this, that the software engineers, the engineers period that make the infrastructure work for Tesla Autopilot are the unsung heroes, and I agree. Those people are often brilliant, essential, and they kind of, shun the spotlight actually, because they love the work for the work itself. And I admire that deeply. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash lex and click on the create free account button to get started with $100 in free credit. 
This episode is sponsored by Magic Spoon, low-carb, keto-friendly cereal. Even when I say Magic Spoon, it just brings joy to my heart. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs, and 140 calories in each serving. You can build your own box or get a variety pack with available flavors. There's a ton of them, cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. I think it goes on and on. I think they keep adding new flavors sometimes, but still, friends, cocoa is my favorite flavor and the flavor of champions. It reminds me of childhood. It reminds me of happiness without any of the pain that comes with childhood and happiness and the sugar crush. Because there's not uh, the sugar situation that most cereals have. This thing is really good for you. It has the deliciousness, but none of the evils of sugar. Sugar's not evil, but it's just bad for you. <laughs> Let's not call everything evil. Anyway, Magic Spoon have a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, they've refunded. it. Go to magicspoon.com slash Lex link and use code Lex at checkout to save $5 off your order. That's magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex. This show is also brought to you by Sunbasket meal delivery service. It's restaurant quality food packaged up, delivered to your home and ready to heat and eat. Heat and eat. Sounds like something Muhammad Ali would come up with. In other words, it sounds awesome. Eating to me is a joy, but it also is a thing that takes up time in a day, so it needs to be efficient. So you have to balance those things. If you enjoy this kind of thing, inject variety into your life, bring joy by way of variety in the food you eat. Me personally, I don't necessarily get joy from variety. I just get joy from the deliciousness of food. And some basket is delicious. So uh, the other aspect of it is the efficient thing I mentioned. And that's that's what some basket really helps with, is make deliciousness and variety, if you care about that kind of thing, efficient. Anyway, right now, Sunbasket is offering $90 off to your first four deliveries, including free shipping, on the first box, when you go to sunbasket.com slash Lex and enter code Lex. That's sunbasket.com slash Lex and enter code Lex. Finally, friends, this show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. I use them to protect my privacy on the internet. I've used them for many, many, many years. There's a big, giant, sexy red button. Doesn't get any simpler than that. Doesn't get any more efficient than that. I just love it. Clearly, I'm in the holiday spirit currently. It's New Year's Eve. I'm doing this ad read. I love life. I love everything. And I love ExpressVPN. Actually, ExpressVPN has been with me for many years through the hard times, through the hopeless times, when I was full of self-doubt and nothing was working. It's funny. It's funny that you can have that kind of relationship with software. Of course, the software doesn't know about it. It was just there being useful, but there's a relationship with that big red sexy button. Anyway, there's a bunch of cool things about ExpressVPN I guess I'm supposed to talk about. Like it uh, adds a layer of privacy protection between you and the ISPs. You can change location to watch any kind of shows on Netflix and Hulu and whatever. Uh, the most important thing for me is just easy, fast to use, works on any device, operating system, my favorite is Linux, of course, the greatest. I should really talk to Linus Torvalds on this program. Thank you to ExpressVPN for being there through the tough times 
and the good times. We've been through it all. ExpressVPN and I. Anyway, go to expressvpn.com slash LexPod to get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash LexPod. And if you friends are going through some hard times with ExpressVPN or without, I wish you the best of luck. Hard times make for a tougher mind. And a tougher mind helps you appreciate when the times are good and things are beautiful and love is plentiful in your life. Happy New Year, happy holidays. I love you all. This, friends, is the Lex Friedman Podcast. And here is my conversation with the great, the amazing, the one and only, Michael Malice. Dostoevsky wrote in The Idiot, my favorite of his books, through uh, the main character, Prince Mishkin, that beauty will save the world. These words, seemingly naive and ultimately, at least to me, profound, what do they mean to you? Beauty will save the world. Naive? Really? I don't even seem naive at all. Well, uh, Solzhenitsyn actually, for his 1970 Nobel Prize uh, speech, talked about this line a lot. And he thought for most of his life that was a silly line. There was just words thrown out there because with all the suffering that's in the world, what has beauty actually ever done? Oh but, my God, I hate this so much. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you talking I, trash about Solzhenitsyn? Yeah, I am. Okay. Um, and this is perfectly sets up this theme. You know, I said, let's do this episode, start the new year on a positive note, give people hope, give people joy. Uh, you and I both have friends who are models, right? And it's a silly profession to some extent, of course, but... You are actually a model. I am you actually, are my friend. I, I am, that's right. That's true. I am under a model. I was trying to be subtle. But for those people who actually, you know, deserve to be models... Um, when you look at someone who is a model and in some of their photos and these, they, these people look perfect. Now in real life, they're not perfect. They have flaws. They'll be the first to admit it, so on and so forth. But when you look at beauty, it is almost impossible to maintain a sense of cynicism and hopelessness. Because if there's even one moment when some uh, element of perfection has been actualized, if there's one moment where a beauty has been realized and captured, you can't say, well, it's never going to happen again. So I think beauty, it means hope. I think I hate that cynical idea of like, um, I, I get, I, I appreciate Solzhenitsyn's broader point in that a lot of times people, there's something called a deepity where people throw words together to sound profound. And if you take it apart, like this is just complete gibberish. I don't think this is an example of that. I think beauty inspires. And it more importantly, it proves to you this is something that can actually happen on this earth. Plato, right? The platonic theory of forms, like this world is imperfect, but these perfect forms exist in another dimension. And that's where our concepts come from. You know, he, he was an early... Uh, person trying to figure out where our concepts come from uh, and epistemology and so on and so forth. Um, but that is something that is real in here. 
So I completely disagree with uh, his analysis of that. And I don't know if it'll save the world, but it's certainly a prerequisite. And what's the point of fighting for your values if you don't want to make the world a more beautiful place? Well, it's also how you define beauty, because beauty could be just aesthetic beauty. It could be art. Of course, art could be could uh, encompass a lot, a lot more than just literature and paintings. It can encompass the full life, the full dance of life. But then beauty could be something just uh, deeper, like whatever that awe you feel when you pause and hear the music, just hear and like look up at the stars. Like for some reason when I see rockets go up, for me it's like science. What is that? The awe that we're able to accomplish that as humans. You know, that's funny because, you know, there's lots of different schools of thought, like th these people versus these people and, and you know, maybe vegans versus um, steakhouse people. I think in terms of the sciences, and I guess you and I would be on opposite sides here, mm -hmm. you have the astronomy people versus the zoology people. Like the, the big question is, would you rather spend 10 minutes on the moon or would you rather spend 10 minutes in the deep sea? And for me, it's clearly the deep sea. Um, the zoology that's down there, uh, there's something I would encourage people to look up uh, called deep staria, which is a jellyfish. And the, the scientists, it's, it, what's amazing when you watch these deep sea dives on YouTube is that the scientists are, they're, they're nature dorks like everybody else. They're, they're, they went into this field and there's none of this maybe Solzhenitsyn style cynicism of when they see an amazing animal in its natural environment you know, exhibiting these crazy behaviors, they lose it. They're on the mics like, oh my God. And like, it's so exciting to watch. So uh, I, I'm not a rocket person, but I'm definitely a zoology person. So animals and plants in the sea. And also it's, it's so mathematical. There's so much, so many forms. There's, there's this, um, there's this plant called Aerospermum titanopsoides. I don't know how to pronounce it because they're always in Latin. You never hear them pronounced. You said sperm. Aerospermum, yeah, because it's a woolly seed is the is the genus. Um, the leaf, it's just always puts out one leaf, mm -hmm. but the leaf is covered in little magnifying glasses, uh, lenses to make it maximize the sunlight. So it looks like this little crystal seashell. It's tiny. It's like two centimeters, but it's just this amazing thing that has, that grows out of the sands in South Africa. Just to defend Solzhenitsyn for a second. So if I may read a couple of his lines from the speech. Sure. So he said, uh, one day, that's how he introduces it. One day Dostoevsky threw out the enigmatic remark, beauty will save the world. What sort of a statement is that? For a long time, I considered it mere words. How could that be possible? When in bloodthirsty history, did beauty ever save anyone from anything? And then later he goes on to argue with himself in the speech as a older, wiser man now. But perhaps that ancient trinity of truth, goodness, and beauty is not simply an empty faded formula as we thought in the days of our self-confident materialistic youth. If the tops of these three trees converge as the scholars maintained, but the two blatant, two direct stems of truth and goodness are crushed, cut down, not allowed through, then perhaps the fantastic, unpredictable, unexpected stems of beauty will push through and soar to that very same place, and in so doing will fulfill the work of all three. In that case, Dostoevsky's remark, beauty will save the world, was not a careless phrase, but a prophecy. Uh, which, of your, 
which of these three things are your favorites? Truth, goodness, or beauty? What, what did he call truth and goodness? The blatant, two direct stems of truth and goodness um, versus the fantastic, unpredictable, unexpected stems of beauty, which is how I see your Twitter account. <laughs> I don't think, that, I think there's certain dearth of beauty to be had in my Twitter account, that's for sure. Uh, it's certainly no goodness. Um, I, 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 <laughs> or truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Twitter. There's no truth to be found. Uh, I would. I will answer the question. I will, of course, point out that having this kind of, you know, distinction between the three things is, I think, kind of synthetic. Uh, I think they very heavily overlap. If not, in, if I could probably make the argument they're synonymous. Um, in fact, I do believe that they're largely synonymous. Um, Goodness. That's such an interesting word, goodness. Um, of which of those three is my favorite? Uh, I think truth is overrated in the sense that if something is a good story, the story doesn't have to be true or real in order to motivate you and, and, and move you. Um, a lot of times we can delude ourselves about somebody uh, and that might actually serve a purpose to some extent. You know, if you have someone who's maybe a family member and you kind of ignore bad things that they do, uh, there might be a reason for that. Um, of the three, which is most important, I think I would say probably goodness. I would say of the three, the most important is goodness, because if you don't appreciate goodness, then beauty is just empty. It's just a it's just a picture. Or it's nice. Um, bad people appreciate beauty. Uh, you know, bad people are often you know seductive or, or have a beauty about them. And in terms of action, I think it takes a lot of skill and work to create beauty or to create truth or to express truth or to express beauty. But I think goodness is a. It's like um, the easiest default state of being just being good to others. Yeah, like, you know, like th there'll be things where these videos where like one dog is drowning and like another dog jumps in and saves it from the, the pool. Like that to me is just really amazing stuff uh, and is very moving. Um, so just to me, goodness means integrity and it means kindness. Um, and yeah, I think of the three, that's my, my would be the one I pick. Yeah, and actually, I think people, sorry to interrupt, I think people also have this idea, which is inculcated to them, especially by corporate America, that as you get older, it's okay to do the wrong thing sometimes, blah, 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 blah. I don't buy that. And so I think goodness gets rarer and rarer. Um, and, and I think people know better and they tell themselves lies. Yeah. Uh, but once you get, allow yourself the chance to just be good, I think it's makes for a better life. Yeah. But it's like, it's not that much work. Like, it's not like uh, going to the gym and working out. That's a lot of work and you, it's great afterwards. But like goodness is easy once you get into the habit of it. I suppose working out is the same way. There's a lot of stuff. If you make it a habit, you're, you're going to get the rewards of it. And yeah. it's going to be easy. The rewards of goodness, I think, are uh, more immediate than the rewards of working out. As opposed to the hard drugs. Yeah. If uh, you mentioned this quote on one of your uh, live streams, I think, if you save one life, you save the world. Yeah. That's such a cool line. I think uh, I remember reading about Paul Farmer. 
I think his name is, he's a doctor that really, I mean, um, doctors in general, they kind of don't care about like what they're doing as a broad policy across uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of people. They just care about the human in front of them, which is so interesting. They don't care it's gonna cost, like in his case, to save one child, it will cost him hundreds of thousands of dollars. They don't care about that. They can't, they know very well that what their actions cannot be scaled, but they can't help but help the child in front of them. And it's so interesting. That's such an interesting way to live. And th that's the way I kind of think when I try to do something positive is, will this help one person? <laughs> and I just kind of imagine a, a specific person, depending on the thing, that that would help with, like when I'm trying to create something, whether it's a piece of hardware or, or a video or anything like that, or educational material, lecture, that kind of stuff. I don't know, what what do you think about this quote? Like what, is, is it profound or just, just poetic? I think it's more profound than it sounds at first. Uh, the example I think of is Michelle Bachman. She was a former Congresswoman from Minnesota. She clearly had crazy eyes, something weird is going on with the husband, but she adopted like, like 20 kids. Terry Shepard's another friend of mine. He's like a either Navy SEAL or Marines. I, whatever it is, Terry, I apologize. I'm not trying to be funny. And he adopts like elder dogs. So going back to Bachman, it's like, yeah, you can say she's crazy. You can make fun of her politics all you want and all that stuff's legitimate. But if you save a kid, give them a home and you save them from the foster system, um, and you put a roof over their heads and make them feel loved and appreciated, it's really hard for me to sit here and call you like a totally bad person. I think that kind of thing is, Nick Cersei's another one. He adopted a kid uh, and I, I said, you're, I think you're a hero. Like if you, there's some, you know, one of the things that's very hard for me, I'm writing, as you know, I talk about this endlessly, this book, The White Pill, but writing about when people do hurtful things to children, it really is hard to watch and it's hard to, because when you're an author, you have to kind of empathize with the character. You have to, where's this character coming from? Explain their point of view. And that's the one that's the hardest for me to wrap my head around. Like Cruelty to children. Yeah. Or, or, or and, and yeah, sadism to children. It's just like, this is, a to this is something even animals know not to do. Do you know what I mean? Like dogs yeah. around, when you see them around kids, they're very protective. Like if the kid pokes their eyes out, the dog doesn't do anything. So it's like, if you can't even get to that level, uh, what kind of person are you? So I think that quote um, is a profound one and it's an important one. Uh, it also means we're not all called upon to be Superman, right? You only have a very finite ability to move the needle. But at the same time, if you have actually you know, saved a life, you can go to meet your maker. You you did your part. You know, you left the world a little bit better than you found it. And that's all you could ask anybody. Also, I think from a policy perspective, it seems we just do better when we focus on doing a small thing, helping a helping one person. Because it feels like when you start talking about communism and all those kinds of things, when you start to believe you could do good by a lot oh, of yeah, people, yeah. that's where your mind somehow stops being able to do good by a lot of people. That's when you start to think about utopias and somehow utopias goes to, uh, feeds power into the brain to where it deludes you completely. And then you start, it's okay to crack a few eggs to make an omelet kind of reasoning and you, you run into trouble. It seems like it's much better, even when you have the power and the money and so on to achieve scale, to focus on one. 
and then or and locally, then, yeah, locally, yeah, yeah. Because then, so also you have the feedback, exactly. Right. So if you have some kind of program, you know, in Austin or in Brooklyn or something like that, and you you can you can watch. Oh, this is working. This isn't working. Then you could port it out to other places. But top down helping is, you know. At the very least, it's going to be inefficient. And also, I think it's a lot more useful when you're helping people when it's a one-on-one relationship, because then it's less, I don't know, embarrassing, but certainly less something to receive help. And you also feel, if it's one thing if you get a check from the government, you know, food stamps. It's nothing if someone's like, hey, I'm going to buy you groceries until you get back on your feet. You have this kind of motivation, I think, for most people to be like, you know what, this person believed in me. I'm going to make it worth their while that they believed in me. Because yeah. I didn't believe in me. Yeah, I had, I, when I was giving lectures at MIT, there was one um, I was scared shitless. And uh, I mean, everybody, you know, how students are and all that kind of stuff, they're kind of bored. Yeah. And they don't they don't understand that you're human too. They're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or this is, could be just me. They're, they're, I don't understand you're trying to pass this human. <laughs> I know. Uh, but there's one, one uh, gentleman in the audience and he went to all the lectures uh, older gentleman, he was a faculty at MIT, and he just, without very kind of nonchalant, just said uh, after the lectures, he would kind of nod at me and say, "You did great." And uh, before, like one time, he said in a non-creepy way, I know this is going to come off as creepy, he said, uh, "You look great today." Like he said that in a, um, I don't, in the way. So he's like sixty, seventy, whatever. Like he. In this, I don't know, it's in a wise sage way. Oh, because okay. I was wearing a suit and tie. Like I look like you know when you dress up like a young kid, you a dress up. Yeah, yeah, you get your yeah. So he was just like, "All right, yeah, <laughs> you're uh, you're all dressed up. You look great. Yeah. <laughs> you got this." I don't know. That has a lasting impact. That kind of pat on the back. But I agree with you. Um, cruelty towards other adults is somehow understandable because it's uh a world full of conflict, but cruelty towards children doesn't, it doesn't quite, I can't, I can't understand it. (laughs) I can't understand how you could act in a way that directly causes suffering to a child in front of you. Yeah. That that is like the, the, I don't think I've ever talked to you. This might be a good time to ask you about this. What do you make, what lessons do you draw about human civilization from Jeffrey Epstein? from just laying oh everybody thinks about different things when you, you talk to eric weinstein he thinks about intelligence and like who like uh, jeffrey epstein is a front for something else that's what he, he thinks about i think about the weakness of grown men in the face of uh charismatic evil which is like for me directly is mit i didn't know i actually was i guess i was at mit when jeffrey epstein was just at the very end he must have been there. Um, I didn't know any of this, but it, it really bothers me that nobody was able to see through this man because he's obviously, what is also obvious to me is that he was very charismatic. Like, I mean, I, I, I try to think about human nature from this perspective is um, directly, like we said, help one life. Would I know a Jeffrey Epstein, if he was in my life, would I would I know evil when I saw evil? Even if it's sitting across from you, <laughs> even I mean you. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly the evil laugh. Thank you. The the thing. <laughs> 
Well, it's there, a Necronomicon. It's, well, the thing I, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it. Maybe not. It doesn't really matter. We we see things, you and I, Michael, very differently about a lot of things, politically and so on. The reason I, I like you a lot, the reason I like uh, the people I do in my life is there's a, there's a warmth, there's a kindness, there's a humanity underneath it all. I don't really care what you believe. I don't care, like, I don't care what your Twitter says. You you know, it's easy to mistake your Twitter to indicate that there's not a deeply human love for humanity in there. And that's why I'm detecting that. I think I would be able to detect that Jeffrey you Epstein- detect, I'm just imagining the T-1000 <laughs> scans. <laughs> yeah. Detected, yes. Uh, I imagine, I hope, I would be able to not uh, detect that Ep Epstein uh, lacks that completely. Even if he's charismatic in the in the humor he has, even if he is uh, charismatic in the expression of curiosity for science, which he did, he was yeah. curious about like uh, not just like b boring uh, minutia of science. He was interested about the big questions in science, which I could see that could become exciting to scientists. Like, oh wow, here's a person who's thinking big. That's always exciting to, when somebody goes into a room and thinks about like, how do we solve intelligence? How do we travel faster than the speed of light? That's exciting to people, especially people with money, because it's like, all right, so we might be able to actually do big things here. Yeah. Uh, but you could see through the bullshit, the, the, dead, the deadness in the eyes, I don't know. Uh, so I think about that because I, I feel like I have the responsibility for me as an individual to detect evil. So I, do you know who Michael Alec is? Okay, this is going to be a whole long, this is going to be on Lex uh -oh. Clips, but this is a whole long story. So there was a scene in New York in the 90s called The Club Kids. And they would go out to different nightclubs at night. They would all dress in really kind of crazy um, costumes. And but the costumes were all like like goofy and like dressed like, like an angel. This was dressed like a nurse. It was There was a juvenile aspect to it. They're all taking, you know, ketamine and, and ecstasy to all hours. This is kind of rape culture was coming up in there. And the head of it, and in fact, there's um, a clip on YouTube. I think it was the Jane Whitney show of the club kids and Gigi Allen. Gigi Allen is a, a you know, kind of punk rock performer, hard rock performer who passed away. And the audience, and Gigi Allen was very uh, aggressive and like a crazy person. My friend once saw him in a concert and he took a dump on stage, smeared it all over his face, grabbed the girl from the audience, gave her a big kiss. And as she walked by him, she, he just, she just went like this, Ugh, like, excuse me, like went to the bathroom. So the audience is screaming at Gigi Allen because he's very visibly over the top. Yeah. Whereas you got a bunch of these kids dressed in these silly costumes, you guys are just having fun. Well, the head of the club kids, Michael Allig, ended up killing someone. There was a kid called Angel Menendez who hung around with them. He would always have angel wings and boots. Uh, one time they're at Michael's condo uh, with um, another with a drug dealer named Freeze. They got into a fight. So angel got hit in the head with a hammer. They kill him. What are we going to do with the body? Uh, they put it on ice in the bathtub. They had a party. So everyone's going to the bathroom while Angel's body's there. Michael got, they're like, all right, we got to take care of this. Michael got extremely high on heroin, had like uh, cutlery from Macy's, saw the body in pieces, put in a box. They took him in a cab. The cab driver helped them throw the body into the river. And then Michael starts walking around Manhattan wearing Angel's boots and would tell people, oh, I killed Angel. Now, because he was a super effeminate, over-the-top 
like he would pee in people's beer kind of guy. Everyone's like, oh God, Michael, like, like you and your stupid pranks. Uh, but it was true. And he got caught um, and he got sent to jail. So I was in a store in Manhattan in Soho. And it was one of those stores where you have like all sorts of things for sale. And I saw a painting and it said Malice. And I'm like, wait, what? And it was M. Alec. It was a Michael Alec painting. Mm-hmm. He had painted while in jail. So my mom bought it for me for my birthday. I don't remember what birthday it was. And I started writing to him in prison. He was going to write a memoir called Aligula, which is clever. And then I actually went to visit him. Like, I want to see what this person's like. Because on the on one hand, he's king of New York nightlife, this goofy person. And it's also kind of ironic that Gigi Allen is like, maybe he's gross. He's not killing anyone. He's probably an accountant off the stage. And Michael Alec actually did kill someone and then bragged about it tongue in cheek. So, but meeting him, he passed away last December um, on Christmas, actually, on Christmas uh, 2020. Uh, um, he was clearly a sociopath. And I'd never met a sociopath before. Now, a lot of times we'll read these, like, you'll take a BuzzFeed quiz, like, are you a sociopath? And it's like, oh, my feelings weren't hurt when I was mean to someone. It's not a thin line between, like, me and you and him. It's a thick, thick line. Because when you're talking to someone like that, at least in this specific case, he was being very friendly. He wasn't, and it's not like he was going to kill anyone or as a threat to me. Um, But there's that sense, like something's really off here. And he was talking to me about how after he had killed Angel, he would just talk about it because he felt so much guilt. He just wanted to get caught. It's like, no, no, no. You, what he was describing wasn't guilt. He was describing just, he didn't like the, um, the knife over his head, like waiting to get caught. I'm like, you don't even know what guilt is. So it was kind of like, oh, wow. So uh, as for Jeffrey Epstein, but the thing is, Michael Alec is, was in a very low social position. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when someone is powerful, very high status, and they do something, we are as kind of hierarchical animals, we kind of defer to their norms. Yeah. So if you're at a party with, let's suppose, uh, or either of us, and it's like a Jeffrey Epstein party, and everyone at the party is doing some sort of weird drug we've never heard of, we wouldn't really feel comfortable judging them because like their norms kind of become the norm for that space. Um, the, th- the lesson for me about Jeffrey Epstein, uh, there's, a se- there's a lot of them. Because I think this, the to me, the, the biggest moment was the Amy Rohrbach situation. Amy Rohrbach was caught on a hot mic saying that they had all the goods on him, they had all the names, and that Buckingham Palace called them. They killed the story because they weren't going to get a Meghan Markle interview out of it. So that, the willingness of those in power to do the wrong thing for the flimsiest pretext, with, I think was a big important lesson. Also, the fact that no one at ABC had any consequences for this. In fact, the only person who got in trouble for all this was someone who used to work at ABC, went to, I believe, CBS, and they got fired from CBS because apparently they had access to footage at one point, even though they weren't the ones who had leaked it. Um, So whistleblowers are like the only, for example, the case in um, uh, uh, Eric Garner, the guy who was selling Lucy cigarettes in New York City. Uh, who was arrested. He had a heart attack or whatever it was on the way to jail. He died. The only person, so the, the cops had a situation there. The only person who had gotten in trouble because of that was the guy filming it. Like he went to jail. So I think there is, if there's a lesson in terms of, we ha- look at Julian Assange, right? There's a huge 
amount of power exercised by elites to make sure that what is done on the cover of darkness remains on the cover of darkness. And also Kevin McCarthy, who is currently the House Minority Leader, Leader of the Republicans, he wrote a letter to ABC News like, you had this guy, you, maybe you couldn't call in the authorities, but you could have leaked it to somebody. Why hasn't anything come forward? Nothing happened as a result of this. We also have to keep in mind that the longest serving Republican Speaker of the House in history, Dennis Hastert, went to jail because of things related to, to pedophilia and things like that. So as Russians, and this is something I think you and I have mentioned before, uh, Americans are very naive, often decreasingly so, about the nature of evil. They think an evil person is someone who's like getting kickbacks um, or, you know, like the Cuomos are colluding, something like that. I I would hardly even call that evil. Um, No, no, this is the sort of things that are so depraved that you would never think about it in a million years in your own home. You don't think in these terms. And, And I think they get off on doing things that if the average person heard about it, the average person would be shocked because that gives them this sense of we're above them, we're different from them. The rules don't apply to us. There's a lot to say here. So one is the norm thing you said at a party. It's really interesting for an anarchist to say that. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's... No, well, I know, I know. I, so I'm not sorry, this, that it came off as criticism. I meant it as harsh criticism. <laughs> 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 no, I, I think about that a lot, like um, as... Uh, the, you know, I found myself in situations where I'm invited uh, to these kinds of parties where people have nice things, and I find it deeply uncomfortable for that reason. I, I don't want to be sort of an activist that goes in and ruins a party. That's that's a, I think that's a, that's not the courageous act. Neither is it courageous when everyone's doing some weird drug that you mentioned to join in. I think uh, courageous is more being your remaining yourself sticking to your principles calmly in that room where everybody is doing the drug and just don't do the drug yeah sure don't make a scene about it but also don't don't do it and i think that little act of courage over time is the way you resist jeffrey epstein that exactly the thing you said is is probably the situation where charisma works so one charismatic person gets the little crowd going and the crowd is everybody sort of uh uh, establishes a norm at the little crowd. And yes, there could be some dynamics that allow that norm to be established. Like you said, like rich and powerful people might enjoy being rich and powerful and better than everybody else kind of kind of thing. But like I, especially for scientists, I, I thought they should have integrity and courage enough to to see through that. Not again, as an activist, like, so you can tweet about it, how courageous you are. But just literally, see, there's something off here. There's something off here, and I'm not going to participate I'm, I'm in it. I'm going to defend these scientists because something off, first of all... I'm, You're always defending academia. It's disgusting. It's, it's my favorite thing. I think that, first of all, I'm not, this is going to sound like a joke, and it's not. I bet you 90% of those MIT scientists are on the spectrum. So everyone they're going to meet is going to be a little off, Right. So I'm sure part of their brain's like, okay, this person's weird. This is just them being on the spectrum. Like the light spectrum? I couldn't even finish the joke. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Number two is off, we we tend to, there's this poem, I forget who wrote it. It was like Nick Cave or something. And it was describing um, like, I think it was Goebbels. Hair, normal. Height, normal. Weight, normal. What do you expect? Horns, right? So- 
when you meet someone, you think something's off, there's going to be a bell curve of what that could be, right? It could be that they're twitchy or maybe they're completely asocial. And then you have Jeffrey Epstein over here. You're going to need a lot of evidence to be like, oh, I feel something off there for this guy's the head of an international, you know, sex trafficking ring. So yeah, you might be like, okay. But at the same time, if the extent of your relationship is this guy is interested in my work, he's going to fund my work and I don't have to give him anything in return. He's clearly intelligent. He's appreciating it. And being a scientist is a thankless job. Uh, I, I, I know what it's like as an author. When I was writing Dear Reader, the North Korea book, my friends were sick of hearing all these North Korea anecdotes because at a certain point, it's like, okay, we get it. Just save it for the book. And you know, you got to be in that lab. You're looking at the springtails, whatever it is you're looking at. No one knows what a springtail yeah, is. I just disagree with you. So the, the, that'd be interesting to draw the distinction between science and writing because the scientific process itself is fun as fuck. It's, it's, you're solving little puzzles. Sure. So like in itself, it's fun. So like it's rewarding. Like the reason you go into uh, science is you can continue really without a boss to continue having fun and solving puzzles. That's that's literally so like uh, unless you become cynical and tired of the whole thing. So the the people, the administration, or when you're running a large lab and you what you get sick of is the emails and the meetings and all that kind of stuff. The actual act of being in the lab is still fun as fuck. If you allow it to be writing, I feel like is there's more priority to publishing. Like, would you enjoy it? The tree falling in the forest. Would you still enjoy any of the books you've written if they never got published? Just not to the same extent, not even close. Right. Right. I, I think that the thing about science, it's almost like you get a peek into the mysterious. Yeah, but this is okay. So let me. This is where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Since moving to Austin, I bought 150, over 150 plants. I like how you're doing the, the politician thing. <laughs> Look, <laughs> like let, me, Bill Clinton. Let, me be, let me be clear. <laughs> All right. It's not. <laughs> wow, you, you are running in 2024. This is very interesting. <laughs> I bought 150 succulents from my house. They're, they're thriving here in Austin as they wouldn't have in Brooklyn. You have a great video about it. People yeah. One it. of those plants I have is the photo I took on my Instagram. There's no other photos on the whole internet. None of my friends care. <laughs> Or they care like ostensibly, but like, oh, that's cool. Like I have a better plant collection in my house than like almost any botanical succulent collection than any botanical garden in America other than probably the Huntington and no one cares. This is what ego looks like, by the way. I, was, I, I can prove it to you. No, I know, but you don't have to rub it in. Well, they have a big budget. I don't. So if I can okay. put it together, they should be able to. All right. So I can only imagine that a scientist who studied, you know, those spiders that look like ants like at a certain, like, oh, and this species does this with the gender dimorphism, their friends are only going to care so much. So if you meet someone who has a lot of money, who now cares about ant spiders, it's going to be exciting yeah, for you. It will be very exciting. But I, I just wanted to push back on the, I think the act itself should be the biggest reward. I think you're always safe. We're talking about goodness being a safe default. I think it's a good default for for plants and for writing and for science is to just enjoy the act even if nobody cares. Okay, this is where this, okay, now I'm even, now I'm wondering why I'm pushing back so hard and I realized what it was mm-hmm. because I've, I've made this point several times and I'm glad I can make it again. There's this window of time that happened in my life and I know it happens to a lot of people when you're in your like 24 to 27, 28, right? So 21 to 24, like you still have your friends from college, so on and so forth, right? 
But then it's kind of like a, a poker game. And, you know, every so often people cash out. They're like, I'm out, I'm out. They get married, they get a job, they move. And if you are someone who is a young, ambitious creative, that window is a very rough one because you're doing the right thing, right? And you're not being you know, a drug addict, you're not being a philanderer, not that those things are wrong, but just like you're playing by the rules, you're creating your stuff, what you want to be known for, contribution you want to make for the world, and no one cares and it gets very lonely. And there is this very emotional disconnect about how is it that I'm creating and I'm working hard and I'm making something happen and it's just radio silence. So that, I don't think it's that easy when you're, you're, you're the scientist, not me, when you don't have any kind of external validation. Humans only have so much fuel. Nothing worth having is easy, Michael. By the way, yesterday, talked on the phone with a person who said he was deeply moved the first time you mentioned this uh, age group of 24 to 27. Yes. He's like, he he's 26, he said, and uh, he feels the full responsibility of that and the excitement. So he left his, like, um, corporate type job to pursue something that he's really passionate about. And that, that, that was like, you were an inspiration to him, which I, I was deeply saddened by that. I also inspired Michael Alex. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the amount of mass murder, um, those that were inspired by you will eventually uh, lead to is, is uh, truly horrifying. What were, were we talking about? So Jeffrey, oh, one thing I wanted to ask you. So, Let's put scientists aside. What about like uh, world leaders, uh, Bill Clinton, your favorite person? Why would he fly with Jeffrey Epstein? Why would he interact with that guy? I mean, don't you think that that's kind of the deal that I'm the president and I get big and powerful people fly me around their jets and that's the symbiotic relationship? Yeah, but don't you also have a good BS detector? Like, the, 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 don't you have a good detector for people who just want to be in your presence? Like, I already understand that there's people like this out there. Like, there's people that kind of want to use me for stuff. And you mean Tim Dillon? Tim Dillon. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I love that guy. You guys met? We haven't met yet here. We haven't met. Okay, yeah. wow. We met before in New York, but we had not since I moved here. Yeah, so you should be able to detect that those, there's those people and there's the people that have kindness in their heart, even if they can benefit from the interaction with you, but they have like, they're good human beings. I feel like you want to, you run into a lot of trouble if you surround yourself or have any people that are manipulative. But I think you, like you that, make like, a bad example. Cause like, let's look at Clinton and let's look at Obama, right? Yeah. So Obama, even though their politics are very close, I'd say in many ways, Obama is apparent. We don't know, I don't know either of them. But to me, it seems very apparent that he's a, very similar behind closed doors as he in front of the camera. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's Barack to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We're, the, <laughs> like he's this. good. Yeah. Clinton seems very clearly to be much more of a performer. He's in front of the cameras, he puts on a role, but behind the cameras, he, he very much has a temper. He's known for that. He's much more of a lech. Um, uh, what's that? What's a pervert. That? Oh, lech with an E? L-E-T-C-H, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Lech. Is yeah. that like a, that's a cool term. So it's, I can use that on the internet? You like could, you're a lech. Yeah, you could use that on the internet. <laughs> you're a dirty lech. <laughs> well, it's dirty is implied. Um, oh, so it's okay. Yeah, so. It's being redundant. Yeah. 
Um, it just feels like it needs an adjective to give it more power. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. So uh, Clinton is a lech. Right. So you can see how there's people who want to meet, you know, the surface Bill Clinton. And I'm sure that gets old for him because he has to be on. But then there's the good old boys where he could be a pervert. And this guy's like, yeah, I know what it's like. And then he feels like he's himself. But I'm all spe- we're all speculating. I mean, I don't know what Bill Clinton is like, what, what was in it for him. He certainly had could afford f- private jets if he wanted to. Uh, there's no shortage of people who want to fly around the world to give speeches, you know. At, you know. But can't, can't he satisfy the lech within uh, in without hanging out with the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world? Like, can't he get, the, I mean, this is the Monica Lewinsky question to me. I'm, I'm confused by all of this. Can't he get, uh, women in a legitimate way of like not not using his power, not hanging out with these shady r- rich people, but just like having a normal mistress like JFK had. Well, JFK had a lot. <laughs> I know, I understand that, but in a normal way, or I don't, I don't know enough about JFK. I, I, but I, like- <laughs> I don't understand the Clinton psychology. First of all, the fact that you're hooking up with someone who's close to your daughter's age, to me, I think was is inherently disturbing. But she's an adult, so okay, that's not that, that, uh, you know, beyond the pale. But also the idea that, oh, if I don't f- physically fornicate with you, it's not cheating. Like that, whatever you tell yourself, or like if I don't ejaculate, it's not cheating. Like these rules... That, and it may be at least some kind of slippery slope. Like you start not having the rules of- But who you fool? I mean, if you told your wife, like, listen, it wasn't cheating. She only, you know, performed on me. You're going to say this with a straight face? Like, do you, I, I, at a certain point when something is so brazen, you yeah. wonder if the person even be, has to believe it because who are you fooling? But like we started this this conversation with, there is a line between- young women older than 18 and um, young teens, like 12, 13 kids. Have you ever, when's the last, oh, because you're, it's different for you because you're at MIT. I was hanging out with uh, uh, Blair White uh, and she had a couple of, of fans with her of hers and they were like 22, 23 and they were like children to me. Yeah. Like, I'm like, to, to me as someone who is in his late 60s, to look at these people as adults, like it, it, they look completely like kids. Mm-hmm. So that- Now, of course there's exceptions. Like I've interacted with a young 20, 20 year olds that are like, you're way more mature than I'll ever be. Like the wisdom that comes out of them is, is quite fascinating. Well, visually, oh. the, 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 the energy and the way they look, they looked so young to me and yeah. the, the, the way they carried themselves. It was it, the, the idea that my instinct was, let's tuck you in and read you a bedtime story, right. not let me like touch you or something. It was just like, I, like it was just wouldn't enter my head. So there's, but the thing is, is it possible that in order to want to be the president, you have to be a crazy person? Mm. That you have some kind of weird view on power. It could be a power thing too. Yeah. Like, like you can get away with stuff. Like if I was Clinton's age, nothing about Monica Lewinsky to me would be, attractive and also i would just feel bad for her because i know she's going to catch feelings and it's kind of like feeling yes yeah, true this and is it's, very true it's just like why would i do this to this kid for yeah. what just because i want to get some like momentary pleasure come on beauty is in the eye of the beholder i'm sure she looked uh gorgeous to him in the moment well let me ask uh we, we started talking about beauty uh who are you wearing 
<laughs> so as a model, an under you usually have, don't have a shirt on when you're modeling. <laughs> so it's nice to see you uh, dressed up today. Um, <laughs> nice and warm. This is because, so for those who don't know, for Russians don't celebrate Christmas. Obviously, with the Soviet Union, Christmas was illegal. No Thanksgiving, basically no major holidays where everyone gets together. This is the one holiday. Yeah, New Year's. New Year's. It's the Novigod. one holiday. And instead of, oh. I remember as a kid, instead of Santa Claus, we have Dead Maroz, who's the same thing, basically. It's like Android and iPhone. It's, it's like a cheap version yeah, of, yeah. of Christmas. He's got this girl with him. She's like Snow White or whatever. And Russian kids, they go to sleep on December 31st and they wake up January and they have a present under their pillow. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember as a kid, this happened once and it just blew my mind. You know what I mean? It's just like, I went to bed and my dad's like, oh, you know, you're going to have, Jim is going to bring you a present if you've been a good kid. And I'm like, I, I think I was a good kid. <laughs> like, but you don't even remember a year of your life when you're four. Yeah. Uh, you remember but like You two remember weeks. those moments. Yeah. And then I woke up and there was a present under my pillow and I'm, I was, it just blew my mind. And that building is still there, 1461 Shore Parkway in Brooklyn. So, um, and it, it's just also funny, like, uh, what I really like about kids, you know, being an uncle now is kid logic because they have very little bit of data, but they're using logic to make sense of it. And sometimes it gives them the completely wrong conclusions for the completely right reasons. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, I, I my bedroom as a kid was right off the kitchen and I'd be scared of the dark a little bit. So they'd leave the light on the kitchen while I went to sleep. And at the same time, my parents had told me, you don't leave the lights on the house. It costs money, waste electricity, right? So I would be worried because I'm like, oh my God, my parents leave the lights on the kitchen all night and now it's costing them so much money. Mm -hmm. Not realizing that, you know, five minutes after I'm out, obviously they're turning the lights off. But like in my kid logic, this was a concern of mine. Yeah, and, and memories work that same way. I have a collection of memories that are stitched together logically somehow, but they, they also don't really make sense. There's a, there's a few defining things. So I, I grew up in, in Russia and experienced a lot of uh, New Year's in Russia. There's a there's a a lot of incredible things about that tradition that just warms my heart. So one, as a kid, you mentioned these kind of st stories. That's the one night of the year that kids are allowed to be adults in the following way, like you in 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 kid logic, yeah. you're allowed to stay up all night. Oh yeah, okay. That was uh, as late as you want, which actually ends up being you're not used to eleven. It, so you, <laughs> <laughs> right, you're out. <laughs> you crash, but no, you get to. Uh, you know, two, three, four at night, you stay up and what you get to witness is almost like Alice in Wonderland goes into this world. Yeah, You get to witness what is the adult world really like? Now, obviously it's not an actual adult world. Fighting. <laughs> uh, merriment, like, like laughing, oh, yeah. fighting, arguing, but also like in, in our case, like singing and uh, like, yeah, arguing like philosophical stuff, but also like... Um, if I may, how do how would I describe it? This is also probably a little bit of Russian culture, but like flirtation in all of its forms, meaning like men and women just being like because oh, they yeah. dress up. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's uh, it's joy. It's like you get to show off like dresses, whatever you got. You show it off. This is fun. And then um, men too, just like friends laughing, like arguing, just showing off the best they got with delicious food. Obviously, that there's a Thanksgiving 
element there yeah. uh, where there's just so many, just you bring out all the traditional stuff, uh, the the uh, salad, just everything, just the full thing with the desserts and obviously the vodka, a lot of vodka. And at the time, so this is the Soviet Union, like the biggest stuff, and this is so sad that these are the things I remember, is like uh, Coca-Cola. Oh yeah. Like American, like th that, uh, I would probably kill somebody for a Dr. Pepper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so fascinating that um, you take it for granted, sort of the results of capitalist society, the material things that are created, but that was the ultimate happiness is to experience this new thing, sugar. I don't know. Um, Do you know there's like under a- Under scarcity, you There's like communist Coca-Cola in Czech Republic. <laughs> so basically they try to rip off Coke yeah. and it's just like, it's like they just threw whatever they could together. And it was a very poor knockoff, as you can imagine. I forget what it's called. And all the Czech people right now are getting very angry at me because I can't think of it. But they have it now. And the slogan is good or weird. <laughs> um, so it's like this. So they kind of reclaimed wow. this kind of hipster soda. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. It's almost like a parody. In right. Yeah. But I think the thing I really remember is the camaraderie, like the love for each other and neighbors too. Like, um, like you and I are neighbors now. We don't see each other that often. I hope that changes, but a lot of it is also me. I'm just a deep introvert. You're also the hardest working person I know. Yeah, so it's time, but you know, like, it's not like I'll go in the middle of the night at like 4 a.m. and go to 7-Eleven, just sit there sipping a Slurpee for an hour thinking about life. So it's not like I'm always working. Yeah, I don't know. What I mean is like you get to meet your neighbors and you get to experience their uh, their highs and their lows and you get to bitch about life, about government, about corruption, about the unfairness of life together. Well, it's uh, also, I think, what people don't appreciate as Americans is it's very rare in Russia to have a safe space. Yeah. So you know that that January 1st, no one's gonna snitch on you. You know, they're not gonna be informants probably. So you can vent and, and you know, that's the thing with people in totalitarian countries, you have to have the public facing persona and then behind closed doors is very different. It all comes out. And I, I also remember the arguments and I've I've been uh, going on um, clubhouse recently into Russian rooms. Oh, just to <laughs> well, just to practice Russian. And uh, they, it's so beautiful to watch. I mean, Clubhouse is a very specific collection of Russian people. Maybe it's a little bit political, but, and they're a little bit older. Uh, and it's interesting to watch how much they love to argue. Oh, like Russian, Russian love, love to argue. Yeah. And so like, it, it will be literally, um, it's, you could think of it as a nonlinear dynamical system. Okay, from an engineering perspective, it, Whenever any positive topic comes up, it's you could you could feel the skepticism and then wait a minute, this is not yeah, good, yeah. and they'll start like uh, perturbing it until you're like uh, th they'll find some way to say like come on now that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and then it goes back into argument. It's so fun to watch because uh, in one sense you could see it as negative, in another you could see it as free to express yourself because. 
it feels like you can solve a lot of problems by allowing yourself to just uh, be emotional, both both emotional and say hard truths and all those kinds of things without like, um, without patting yourself on the back about it. Uh, but also it just sort of those Russian rooms make me realize how constrained American speech is, how careful people are in the way they express it, even the Michael Malice's in the world, you're you're constantly being like nuanced. <laughs> there they just say crazy shit. Oh yeah. I and know. then they correct themselves and make fun of themselves and they completely shift opinions a minute later. And it's it's chaos. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. So I, I love that that culture is, it's funny given the current regime in Russia, like how that's coupled with how people are talking and, um, yeah, I don't know. And I have those m memories of childhood of uh, of friends that I had of just having that true freedom of talking, and somehow that leads to uh, deep bonds together. Uh, when when the life when you're poor, when life is uh, has a lot of elements that are unfair, when the government is corrupt, there's sort of it's just um, especially in the Soviet Union, there's uncertainty about the future. All of it, you just get closer together, like penguins huddling together in the cold like that March of the Penguins movie, that, I don't know, uh, the, the friends I've gotten there, like, I get em emotional every time I kind of th think about those friends because it was so close. That friendship was so fucking But close. I just really hate the, the Russian cynicism. No, I know you do, and I actually disagree with you about it. You see it as cynicism. I see it as... Um, waves on top of the water, like surface cynicism and the depths as I see the beauty of the Russian soul. So we like, yes, that cynicism can negatively affect a lot of people. Like you, I think you've talked about like as a parent, like being cynical about the world yeah. and then you have dire negative consequences on your children, they become cynical. They don't ever take big risks to take on bold things. And I have those arguments um, because the cynicism is exhausting, it's destructive, it's yes. anti-creative. But, so in, in their perspective is, this is what the Russian folks would say, well, yes, that's our role. Like being cynical is being reasonable about the world. Is being but it's realist. not, it's complete unreasonable. It's a complete lie. No, I know, but their argument is, yes, but we're we're giving you this force and it's your job to resist against it. So it's a I'd test. I love the idea that if you're going to be creative and innovative, you don't have enough up against you. Yeah, exactly. This is exactly. Like, it, oh, I don't. I don't. It's not hard enough already that I want to be an author. And now you got to be like, well, what? Let Let me just put some fire ants on top of it. So I I just want to separate. I agree with you that the cynicism is is bad and destructive, but the idea that life is suffering, and thinking from that as a first principle. I think there's a lot of beauty to be discovered through that. So there's a cynicism, and then there's- a horrible message. Uh, Life is suffering? No, not, well, yeah, I mean, Camus. Um, Camus doesn't think that. The, now we're going into uh, definitions of suffering then, because absurd. What see like, life is absurd and life is suffering are not even close to the same concept. Well, then you're just defining the terms differently. So well, that's because they're different terms. Yeah. Well, so is love and beauty, but like, so if let's you, define. Okay. Wait, you're selling if your baby's in the crib, like with a fever, you're like, oh, that's absurd. No, it's the kid's suffering. It's not the same. 
so yes, starvation. See, you've been for the white pill researching a lot of actual specifically defined suffering. Sure, so, but also a lot of of wonderful things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the the word suffering can encompass more than just specifically starving, and it could the, the, it can encompass like a lot of the philosophers uh, uh, talk about it. it encompasses like philosophical suffering. The fact that there is if if you're not careful, life will, can appear meaningless. You can fall into a nihilistic view. Like it, it's 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 difficult to have the responsibility of freedom to act in this world because you can fuck up in so many different ways. And then life is seemingly unfair in this in the sense that good things happen for no apparent reason and terrible things happen for Absolutely. no apparent. Like what you know, it's the old religious question of why does evil. Uh, happen in the world, or what, why do terrible things happen in the world? There's this book called Six Word Memoirs, right? Where all these different personalities Those were are awesome. Were, were you in it? No, I'm in it with so you had to basically write your autobiography in six words. In six words, and mine was good things happen to bad people. <laughs> <laughs> you see, there you go, there's humor. Yes, that's your way of dealing with the suffering. But I don't think life is inherent. Like. If life was suffering, we wouldn't be able to have ha happiness. No, out of suffering happiness is born so like it's it's the ups and downs of life and what it means like i don't th this i dis i don't agree at all that you need to suffer in order to be happy i agree you have to work hard but that's not the same thing yeah all right so the way i'm using suffering and i think a lot of them use suffering is the way you use like gravity so in, in order for the roller coaster to work you need gravity there needs to be a force that bring you down sure in that same way there's like you have to resist the natural pull of nature that wants to destroy you. N no, nature wants you to, nature's indifferent, but we have the capacity because we're blessed with minds and we're blessed with friends. Yeah, to transcend yes. nature. Yeah, no, I know, but I, I think it's a, it's a word that captures something about life that there's no reason to it, that it's absurd. I think to me, oftentimes the way I think about the word suffering is synonymous with absurdity. This is not suffering, but this is absurd. I just noticed there's a box with a, with a big bow on it next to you. What's in the box, Michael? It's your present, so it's your present for New Year's. Can, uh, can we open it? Yeah, sure. What's in the box? It's gonna take- And you brought up suffering. This is gonna be very unpleasant. Here you go. I packed it myself. Yeah, there's a whole process in there. So there's three presents in there. Less. I'll read the card first. Okay. Something about opening presents, like tearing stuff, makes me feel like because like I just tore this sheet of paper, yeah. so it'll never be the same again. <laughs> it's entropy. It's entropy. Time is, you've got a powerful voice. You've got a powerful voice. To Lex, thank you. Maybe I should read the other card first. You've got a powerful voice. Listening to what you have to say always puts me in a hopeful place. I feel like this is building up to something. You show me how change can happen when you face the world with pride, confidence, and a voice that can't be silenced. Keep speaking up, the world is listening. Yeah. 
There's no cynicism in this card. No, this is about, this is New Year's. This is all about hope Love. and joy. <laughs> what? To Lex, I'm seeing the binary. Uh, oh. To Lex, thank you for setting the path for me to move to Austin. Zero one, zero zero one, zero zero one, zero one one, zero one one, zero 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 one one one, zero one zero one. Michael Malice. Yeah. Brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> thank you, brother. My pleasure. Uh, let's get to the present. <laughs> okay. It's a it's a PC box. This is very promising. It better not be sex toys. There's, I no, swear to there's God. nothing. This is all. There's nothing inappropriate right. at all. Why would it? Why would sex toys be inappropriate? <laughs> because That's you're sex positive. Because you're a virgin. <laughs> yeah, bring a knife to a party. How clever is it to put it in a PC box? Well, I had it. I just got a new PC. Okay. Get What's there's the also a can. Yep. Open the can first. Open the can. Do you wrap yourself? <laughs> <laughs> that scares shit out of me. get back in the can that actually stayed in there yeah. that's magic you just gotta cut the string no <laughs> you're the most beautiful troll of all I, am. I love you so much this is awesome Did it not work? Pick it up. Oh, it didn't work. There's a terrifying springy feeling to this thing. I don't want to open this. I need to move something aside. <laughs> I hate you so much. What? What? Oh, is it the other way? No, just pick it up. <laughs> Can't believe I fell for that. I hate you so much. Wrenches are my favorite. I can't believe I fell for that. Okay. And there's box number three. It's like a matryoshka. I can't believe that worked. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted the box to open all these gears to fall out, but you can't get You can't any. get them. Yeah. Does that really grind your... <laughs> you know what grinds your gears? Why am I scared? Okay. This... There's another box. This leads to my death. No, no, this isn't. This is. There's a story behind it. <laughs> I can't believe that worked. <laughs> oh god, that's so good. All right. <laughs> All right. No springs. No weapons. <laughs> no wrenches. 
Okay, so let me tell you the story behind that toy. Tonka robots. robots that turn into vehicles. So when you there when I was a kid, you had transformers, but for us poor people, you had GoBots, right? Mm -hmm. So the GoBots, there were four main characters for the good guys. It was Leader One, Smallfoot Turbo, and Scooter. And what was annoying is when you had the action figures, you couldn't find the ones that were on the TV show. Mm -hmm. And I was a big GoBots fan as a kid. And I went once to the Toys R Us in Caesars Bay in Brooklyn with my grandfather. My grandfather was always very lucky, like just good things happened to him every so often. And I went there, I remember very vividly, they must have just unpacked, just loaded the shelves. And how they had the shelving, it would be like like a grid, you know, you'd have like, it was like one, two, three, four, five, five rows and like uh, five by five. And I remember it was like two up and then you have to do, you have to sit by the side and kind of sort through them. And with the GoBots, each package had a picture of the different figures. So the mm -hmm. packaging wasn't uniform. And they just had Scooter there. Mm -hmm. She was just sitting there. And I was like, holy crap. So that feeling when you're a kid and you find that just sitting on the shelf. Scooter's is, right there. It's just, it was such this simple. Wait, is this that scooter? No, I have it though, but okay. that one is for you. I thought if you want to put it next to your other robots, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. open it up. I can open it up? Yeah, yeah, it's for you. And that way, uh, it's that symbol of joy when you have when you're a kid, when you mm -hmm. find something you really want. I think it just is really like, so when people look at it, they'll be like, don't be hopeless. I'll open this carefully later. No, do it. Do it just yeah, I should, should do it. Yeah. No? Okay. There's no way to open it carefully. Kids don't open stuff carefully. You rip that crap open. But then you break it and then you cry. That's what happens oh. when you're a kid. <laughs> I never did that. Okay. <laughs> Me neither. I never cried, but never got presents either. That is so cool. All right, Scooter. You symbolize childlike discovery. Right? Poor, the poor man's robot. The poor man's transformers. I think there's instructions on the back how to transform her. To her? I only found out as an adult that it was supposed to be a girl. Yeah. Wow, this changes everything. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. That's incredible. No, give me here. Let me show you. It looks better when she's transformed. What? <laughs> no, there's there's levels to that statement. Oh. How does it do like this? Let me see if I remember how to do it. Because I had this as a kid. Arms out. Let go. You, you, the thing is, these are easy to break, I remember. Is it like this? No. Oh, the, the front comes out. Oh, let me see this. Oh, this comes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So that's that. The arms go. I'm having visions of, like, baby Michael. I, I can't do it. Okay, I can't do it. I can't figure it out. Wow, you're right. She looks so much better transformed. <laughs> oh. All right. I'm gonna follow the instructions in a bit and I'll leave yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I'll leave this failed project of yours. Wow, there's a wheel out. Well I don't like this in between form. Well, this is how it's gonna be. Okay. Because we're gonna be accepting of the transformation. That takes time. Okay. I got, uh, I saw this. Oh, it's this. Little thing when I was walking on Congress 
and it says uh, resist. It's a bracelet. It made me think of you. The reason I got it is because there's two bracelets. So one said lucky fuck, and the other one said resist. Now I first saw resist, and I'm like, and then I saw the lucky fuck, and I realized I'm a lucky fuck to find a, a, a relevant. It makes me think of you. This is very nice. Resist the powerful. That's true. I saw this somewhere. The oh yeah 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 yeah. Um, this has to do with in terms of resist. You often bring up the book uh, Machiavellians by oh, James yeah. Burnham, and uh, so I was, I was looking through. I was reading different parts. Of it. It's a, it's a tricky read. It's a little bit. Um, but there, there is a ebook Kindle version now that I've been um, working through. There's a, I think there's an actual audio book too. Anyway, yeah, I just bought so the Machiavellians is is James Burnham's analysis of four uh, thinkers that he regards as the Machiavellians. It was Gaetano Mosco, Wilfredo Pareto, George Sorel, and um, I, I'm blanking on the Mosco, Pareto, Sorel, and jo uh, George Michel. And I just got Pareto's autograph in the mail this week so he he, he talks about freedom and liberty there's an interesting um line that i'd like to get your opinion on in terms of resist and in terms of liberty there's no one force it goes quote there's no one force no group and no class that is the preserver of liberty liberty is preserved by those who are against the existing chief power Oppositions which do not express genuine social forces are as trivial in relation to entrenched power as the old court jesters. So, I mean, the question here is, can liberty is, are you comfortable with that definition or that view of liberty, of freedom, that it at its highest ideal is expressed through the resistance to the powerful as opposed I, to existing in its own? I think his point broadly speaking, which I agree with, is the only thing that can work to mitigate power is other power. That it's um, uh, talk is cheap and persuasion has very limited efficacy. It, it's like if there's a burglar, right? And one person will give you a speech about property rights and you shouldn't be in this person's house and the other person has a gun, you know, it's it's clear which is going to be more persuasive. Yeah, but the, can't you just be free without the struggle, the, without this conflict? I mean, it, I, what I'm uncomfortable with this view is how closely it uh, links freedom and conflict. Like, why does this world have to have conflict for you to be free? Can't I mean? It's uh, and part of it is just emphasis. Well, you're just saying suffering is what leads to joy. See, and now you're in agreement. Thank you. That's I, I just did that just so you can come around and agree. I win. Next topic. <laughs> wow, I'm playing 3D chess here. Okay. This is New Year's. This is, this is now December 31st. I think that's how it works, but in 1973. Okay. I, we recorded this before you were born. Oh no, um, years after you're born, 60. You look great for 60s, early 60s or? Sure. Okay. What five things, let's say, or moments in 2021 are you grateful for? 
or people. Just, I don't know, things, moments, beautiful experiences, profound essences of the year. Like looking back, what are the cool things that just- Personally or socially? Do you exist like in a platonic way socially? I mean, oh, in your personal life? Yeah. Anything, You're, you're both, you're now Michael Malice. You exist as a social entity and a personal human being and all of it, the whole thing. Like what, what stands out to you about 2021? Uh, the fact that for the first time in my life, other than college, I moved to a new city. That was a very big one. And there's no part of me that regrets it or misses New York. So that was a very big deal for me. What do you, uh, about this move, about Austin itself, but maybe the move itself, maybe just the act of moving, What what um, what's great about it to you? The fact that I had forgotten what it's like to have a huge social network, which I had in New York, before people started falling away, and then it really escalated as a result of de Blasio and, and the COVID restrictions. So to have a big crew here um, is something that was very validating. The thing that's also exciting about Austin is that Austin is not a particularly big town. It's not a particularly great town. But everyone here, at least in the circles I travel in, is kind of a refugee from their towns. So it, there is this sense of camaraderie. There is this sense of we're building something together. Back in New York, when you meet someone, it would be like, who is this person? Why am I talking to them? Like, are they a normie? Are they going to be weird? And here there's very little of that. I think there's much more sense of trust with one another uh, when you meet new people. So that's something that's really exciting about um, like I've been introducing all my friends to each other and everyone's been hitting it off like gangbusters. It's really great. So I really enjoy that about um, Austin. I'm enjoying you know the weather, the space. Uh, you read Kerouac and you have his stuff. Jack I have Kerouac. on the road. I read and I read a biography of him. Was, I, I don't know if it was on, I think it was on the road uh, where he, he talks about that feeling when um, you go into some place, you're leaving a place and you're going somewhere else. And the, the place you're leaving disappears behind you. Yeah. And all the people and all, all like the, you just think about that life and it's forever gone. And th there's some inkling of that where um, you get to realize your almost mortality because, okay, that's a chapter and there's not many more. And it was a beautiful chapter, but now on to the next chapter. Is there a melancholy feeling there? No, it's the opposite. I feel like I've been given a new lease on life. Because I didn't realize to what extent there was this subtext of hopelessness in New York. And also people who in New York, you don't appreciate, or you appreciate it consciously, but you can't escape it emotionally, how much the winters get to you psychologically. Uh, it's it's tough. It gets dark so early. It gets cold. You can't walk around. Like that's the thing that's fun about, or was fun about New York is that, you know, when the weather's warm, you can walk for an hour and just mm -hmm. enjoy the sunshine and there's a lot to see and do. But in the winter, you don't have any of that. It's, it's brutal. Uh, and here it's just, uh, so that is something. There's no melancholy at all. Well, that's because there's. Can we say something beautiful about New York? Not the way it is now, but the way it. I could go on for days about how great New York was. What did you learn about human civilization, just life that was beautiful from New York? I learned that there's a lot of really unique, special people out there who are doing their little part to move the envelope and make the world a better place. And that when you have a city 
where they're all there together at the same time, then that really moves the world. And I'm thinking of Paris in the 20s and Harlem in the 20s yeah. and New York in the 70s and uh, uh, LA in the late 60s and San Francisco, especially in the late 60s, things like this. Uh, they really punch above Detroit, certainly at its heyday. They punch above their weight and and just really kind of Philadelphia in 17, 1700s, things really start happening and that ripples throughout the world. You think Austin has a chance yes. to, to be a, a Paris in some way? Yes, because uh, again, it wasn't all of Paris. It was the left bank of Paris and Gertrude yeah. Stein and Hemingway and all them in a little area. So, you know, when you read these history books, these scenes, it's like 50 people, like in a yeah. 10 block radius. These aren't these huge, like Davos conventions. Okay, so the move, the big move. Yeah. What else? What else stands out to you? Again, all, both personally and socially, like zooming in and zooming out. I did a book with a UFC fighter and I was making the point, uh, he was a nine-time world champion, that I would never be as good at my job as he was at his. Yeah. And then when I dropped Anarchist Handbook in May and it was the top nonfiction book on Amazon for like most of a day, I'm like, oh, I'm the top nonfiction writer in America just for today. I was like, oh crap, okay. So I guess I was wrong. That 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 was a major deal. I was I was still shocked and delighted. By the way, congratulations! And I'm truly happy for you, man. It well, it's I'm so proud. But it's also I I'm proud because these are people who had points of view, and they mm -hmm. didn't have it easy. And they fought for what they believed in. And insofar as I get to rescue them to some extent from the dustbin of history and say these people really mattered and they really are worth hearing, uh, I, I, that I love. I love stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine, Topher, uh, like a year ago. And because we're in a weird position with what kind of jobs we have. So, like, I'd be talking in my live streams about people like Candy Darling or Wallace Thurman. And like these are not household names at all. And then I'd be like proud of myself that I'm the one who brings them to some sort of more prominence. And then you want to tell yourself, well, get over yourself, who you think you are. But it's like, but no one else is talking about these people or very few. So to be able to kind of um, give them some kind of stature and platform that they deserve, I think is, I, I, I love being able to do that. So you have a strong voice yourself and to, to sort of join them in. It's like uh, John Lennon with the, joining in with the Beatles is like a, a chorus of very different views on anarchism. It's, just, it's celebrating the individuals, it's celebrating the idea, and you are, I think, will be remembered as a a powerful philosophy yourself, but like you're almost taking just the humility of being in a room with powerful minds together in one book. It's cool. Yeah, and that the, these people mattered, and they had yeah. a unique perspective. Um, and as I said in the introduction to the book, I remember I was in college and we were studying bioethics and there was like a, a, like a graph in the book and the one part says antinomianism, which was the view that, and one side said legalism, right? The two extremes, legalism is what is legal is defined by the government or what is moral is defined by the government. And one said antinomianism, which is nothing stands above moral law. And then there was like, well, since no one believes in this, the answer is someone to the other side. It's like, well, why is it on the charge if no one believes? If it has a name, someone believes in it, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, anarchism is a word that's bandied about and, and in a dismissive way. And it's like, you don't have to like me or agree with what I'm saying, but you can't pretend that they weren't 
Tolstoy. You're going to tell me Tolstoy doesn't know what he's talking about completely? He's in there. Uh, he was an anarchist. So um, it, it was it was a big accomplishment. It was really cool to get a chance to do the audiobook. Uh, for you, you did an incredible thing, which is got a bunch of really cool people uh, to read, a lot of interesting, varied people to yeah, read. Yeah, so what I did for the audiobook, which I... It's, I don't like the idea that hard work is inherently good because sometimes being lazy is actually the right choice. Yeah. So I'm like, wait a minute, why am I reading all 23 chapters when it's 23 different authors? Does it make sense? So I hit my Rolodex and I had different people read different chapters to make it sound literally mm-hmm. like you have the different voices in the book. Thank you very much. You did my, because I was going to read my chapter. But wait a minute, like all the other authors <laughs> are being read by somebody else. Let's have Lex read mine. The one chapter I am most moved by is I did, uh, Lauren Chen. She's a podcaster as well. She's expecting now. So we wish nothing but the best for Lauren and Liam and the Babby. Um, there's a chapter there by this guy named Charles Robert Plunkett called Dynamite. And he's advocating for making bombs and killing people, uh, killing you know the forces of capitalism. And Emma Goldman uh, it was published in her essay while she was in lecture tour. And she was just like, why is this in here? This is this is just really going to make us look bad, so on and so forth. And when you're dealing with any kind of, you know, H.L. Mencken has that quote about every rational man must at times be tempted to spit on his hands, hoist the black flag, and begin slitting throats. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk, sound like the seductive aspect of violence. Like mm-hmm. that's the problem. Like mm-hmm. when you're dealing with terrorism, when you're dealing with political violence, to be able to understand how people can fall for this, how people can be persuaded to think this is a good idea mm-hmm. that I'm going to make some dynamite and throw it into this crowd and kill, you know, police officers and innocent people possibly in, in the service of my, it's, it, you have to, it, it, it's easy to say, oh, they're all crazy, but they're not, you know, even not most people who are crazy don't do these things, you know? Mm-hmm. So to have a woman read that chapter and I told her kind of read it like a phone sex operator because I wanted to have that siren song of like, so you can understand why this calls out to people who are in the rope, the people who are like marginalized. And she did such a superb job with that chapter. That's such a beautiful vision. Yeah, because violence, that's uh, violence is part of human history uh, to a degree that it must be seductive. It must be, there must be a strong pull. Like it's not insane people. It's, there's something probably deep within our, our nature that craves violence. And then when there's charismatic leaders that inspire that and revolution plus violence, that that I could see that being extremely seductive to us. Like when you're truly suffering in your current situation, whatever it is, you're being oppressed by governments or being oppressed by the powerful, violent revolution is probably there's something deep within us that longs for that. And also this kind of the Jelaine Maxwell to Jeffrey Epstein, right? You need that woman to be like, no, no, this is okay, honey. Yeah, Come along. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Don't listen to what your parents told you. They're just prudes. It's a siren song. What do you uh, What do you think about Jelaine Maxwell and tr- the trial and so on? Again, maybe the interesting story there is about the coverage of the trial. So like the story is more complex and interesting than the actual horrific acts themselves. So to me, I don't, maybe I'm not knowledgeable enough, but to me, she's also 
truly evil. I don't know where to, maybe you can help me to figure out who is more evil. The, uh, just like you said now, the person that says it's okay, it's okay, that um, helps the evildoer, or is it the evildoer themselves? I don't know, but I think she's a, she scares me more than Jeffrey Epstein somehow. Like, yeah, I there's had, people like that in the world I too. I had a, like a Twitter poll. Do you think it's more evil or less evil to kill someone because you've been paid to do it? And huh. and people, the winning answer was more evil. And I said it was less because I think in that case, you can kind of check out. You could be like, this isn't my, I'm just doing a job. Yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, you kind of can, I think in a sense, if you have a certain mindset, like intellectually remove yourself from the situation. Yeah. I'm just a conduit. Uh, when you were talking, like I haven't been following her case that that much. It's because you mostly watch CNN and CNN is not covering it. Well, I think my broader point would be people who are untouchable and who know they're untouchable do much worse things than those of us who aren't that way can appreciate. Like I'm, I, I was just, talking about on Twitter about Rosemary Kennedy. Uh, she was one of JFK's sisters. It's not clear whether she was developmentally disabled or had uh, like depressive mental illness. There was something clearly off with her to some capacity. And at age 23, they gave her a lobotomy. And the thing with the lobotomy is you have to be conscious. You, you don't, they don't put you under. So you have to be counting backwards while their scalpels in your brain and they stopped, but they stopped, they did too far. She became mentally like a two-year-old, you know, never had bladder control for the rest of her life, couldn't really talk or walk. And when that happened, they just put her away to some home and they never mentioned her again, or they didn't tell the brothers or sisters where she went. The lobotomy was only revealed in 1987. Um, and they pretended, oh, she's, uh, you know, in this home for kids with special needs. And it's just like, like that to me is very, very scary that someone could, you know, do this to their, that, that people are, I saw people respond like, oh, that was, you know, cutting edge technology at the time, haha. But I'm like, I don't think that that was really uh, done that, that frequently or be hearing more about it, all these, you know, botched lobotomies. And my understanding is lobotomies are very hard to, like you, they would want to do them if someone's like a mass murderer or like like if someone's really bad, like if the person's left an invalid, like who cares kind of situation. But when you're dealing with something like this, like she's not killing people. She's not assaulting people. Uh, she's just difficult because she's making your, your vaunted family look bad. So, um, so that's to you, that's, what is it like psychopathy or something like that? Like you don't care about, you just, you, you do horrific things and you don't really care. I can't diagnose Joe Kennedy, but- what I would say, like with Jelaine Maxwell, I can't empathize because I don't understand. First of all, even in a positive sense, I don't know what it's like to be grooming my son to be the president and lost you know, the, the other son in war. I don't know what that's like. Uh, I don't know what it's like to be so wealthy. Like I have, You have to give Joe Kennedy credit because a lot of what he was fighting for was to allow you know, Irish people and Catholic people acceptance into like high society. Yeah. And he was up against a lot of pressure with that. And he's like, I'm going to you know, screw these people. I'm going to be recognized and we're going to make, make people recognized. So there's something to be said for that. But I mean, I, I, I can't relate to people like him. Yeah. But I mean, that like, 
is just terrifying. Like, I mean, one of the big reasons I'm an anarchist is like when you have someone who has that sense of amount of power over somebody else, a lot of times they're going to do bad things and have no consequences. Do you think uh, in the just like Maxwell case and Epstein case, do you think they were trying to blackmail people? Like trying the what the conspiracy theorists kind of describe that's probably not too far away from reality. Um, that they intentionally try to put powerful people in compromising situations so that they can um, basically get more and more power. Yeah, I think that was a Vanity Fair piece that you're referring to, or, or Fortune. No, oh, sorry, I'm just referring to a general concept. Oh, there was so there was an article that broke this down because this article oh, sure. it was either Fortune, Business Week, Vanity Fair. I don't remember a major, major reputable outlet, and they were, they made the the reporter made the point. They asked around, and they go, "This guy's a billionaire or extremely wealthy, at least. No one I know ever traded." With him, like, where is his money coming from? There's yes. no, there's no paper trail. So the, they're like, okay, if if it's not trading and trades are public, often, you know, where's this money coming from? And it's also like, why are all these people allowing Epstein to be their business manager when he has no kind of track record to show for it? So the hypothesis was he would get people into uncompromising situations with underage girls, secretly film it, and then he would, you know, blackmail them accordingly. Well, I guess that's that the question. That would make sense. I know it makes sense, but I also see a lot of evidence that he's just very charismatic in a room. Okay. So, so, and I've also seen, you know, that's how human connections get made, like business deals get made. Yeah, but how? Are, you, how? Where's his money coming from? Oh, like they rich people without blackmailing, just uh, like him, close, like no, him as a friend. I'm not arguing that. Like, okay, I like Jeff Epstein. Make sure you pull that quote. Yes. I'm a business person. I like Jeff. Michael Epstein. Malice. Yeah. I, I love, love Jeff. Like or love? Love. I'm love. in love, love. with. Um, <laughs> this escalated quickly. I'm going <laughs> to hand over him to be my money manager to have 20% of my estate. Fine. Yeah. Where is he making the money for that 20%? That's the thing that there's no paper trail of him trading or anything. So I can understand. Why. Oh, I see, see. Yeah. Interesting. What were your 2020 um, favorite moments? You mean 2021? Yeah, twenty twenty one. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, it's the Ghislaine Maxwell uh, trial. <laughs> it just really stands out to me. It's very moving, which is why I bring it up. No, uh, moving here. So moving, moving here. But for me, I I think we actually didn't cover that with you, and I'd love to get your comment because uh, you said it's for the first time in your life you moved. So it's not just about the des the place you go to; it's the actual act of moving yeah. is also a leap. Oh, so yeah. the decision was that I'm going to um, give away my salary at MIT. So stop taking salary, give away the group. So students, no more research, the grant funding, I still keep an MIT affiliation just because I have friends and colleagues there still doing research, but giving away really primarily is the source of money. So no salary and let it go to zero. Let my bank account go to zero and uh, take a leap in San Francisco or elsewhere. And as COVID broke out, and a lot of people started talking to me about San Francisco, about the cynicism there. And I would go there and there was a kind of, uh, so it's not all the woke stuff and all that kind of things, which is also a problem. It's less It's uh, less about dreaming about a big future, about building a big future and, 
and more about some kind of identity politic battles that they're just, um, you could say some, some aspect in the positive light is important, but in a place like Silicon Valley, to me, the most important thing is to do big things mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for that to be most of the conversation. And so that cynicism was there. And then I went to look at Austin and Austin was the opposite. Yeah. It was the optimism. And you have people like, as so I talked to so Elon was uh, the optimistic about making this the capital of artificial intelligence and technology and so on. And then um, Mr. Joe Rogan now, just the optimism about making this the cultural capital yeah. of the world of, uh, I mean, specifically comedy, but like it just radiates from them, just the excitement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've seen not many people of that nature in my life. And when I see that in their eyes, that engine, that fire of wanting to create something special about the place, first of all, those people rarely fail. That's first of all. And second of all, that's it's contagious. Con it's contagious. Yes, it's very so contagious. Exciting. And so all that combined, for me, uh, 2021 was this, the ac the actual leap of taking the leap, saying, all right, well, um, I'm actually going to do this. So not just giving away the salary, not giving away all of that, but the whole thing. That's it. You just move to a place, there's an empty building, you know, and you're, you're moving into it. Um, and this is a new life. And that leap, I don't know, it's a scary leap to take because I've taken that leap many times in my life. And this is where, you know, parents and all those kinds of cynicism is really destructive because, you know, um, from a cynical perspective is, you know, I worked at Google, so why leave Google? There's a very high paying salary that you can have Google. And then MIT, why leave MIT? Like it's MIT, this is you've always dreamed about. Like, why do you get a PhD? Yeah, You've loved MIT your whole life. Why leave MIT? I mean, this is the same process I've gone through with a lot of things in life. Like you've been saying every single stage and you need that, um, you need friends, you need support groups and all those kinds of things that are extremely important. But in the end, it's about taking the leap. And for me, 2021 was this leap. And to me that one, one of the most beautiful things you can do in life is to take those leaps. And that's something that, I think is no longer a thing in New York. There's no sense of hope. You don't go to New York now. If if you, there's been such an assault and, and intentionally other otherwise, maybe it's inevitable. They didn't have a choice. But there's been such an assault on creativity and small business in New York that no one or very few people who are in New York right now think things are going to get great soon. Whereas here, I feel it's every day is just something exciting is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the culture and how the conversation goes. It's, it's just in vogue to be cynical in uh, New I York and yeah. San Francisco. I hope it changes because what I love about New York and what I love about Austin also is um, the weirdos, the characters, they, the, the just the variety of personalities that if you just walk around, you get to meet them. And I think New York still has that, but it has the extra cynicism on top of it. That's, yeah. uh, that's a negative. I mean, just becoming friends with Joe, he inspired me to be nicer to people, to not take myself seriously, to be humble, to um, to celebrate friends, not to be competitive, you know? Like all those things, since I started listening to his podcast from the very beginning, it was it just radiated from the guy. The thing that people don't appreciate is Joe Rogan likes it when you bust his chops. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of people at that level 
Like if it's, oh, Mr. Rogan, you're laughing at everything they say. They don't want that. It's very uh, phony and they feel uncomfortable because they know that everything they say is hilarious. Um, I remember I, I went with him. He was doing a performance here and <laughs> I was, yeah, you were there and he was doing his set and I, I'd reached the point now where I don't think of him as Joe Rogan. You know, it's just like my, my buddy's doing standup. You forget. And then I looked at the audience and I remember, I'm like, oh, this is like a religious experience for these people. <laughs> but you forget who he is because yeah. he doesn't carry himself like a big shot. Yeah, yeah. And still, I mean, he gets competitive as fuck. Like, I argue with him a lot. I mean, uh, when I talked to Francis Collins and Pfizer CEO, you better believe I heard from Joe. <laughs> and then we would just get super drunk and argue about it. So it's, um, I mean, it's beautiful. And he, he gets really passionate. So it's not yes. like- it's not like easy to argue with him, but that's great when you don't take it personally. <laughs> it's the, the, fun. <laughs> as you and I discussed, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind us saying this, but like that moment when you first get a text from Joe Rogan and it's some boomer meme, like I, I finally felt like I've arrived as a person. A boomer meme? Uh, what kind of boomer meme are we talking about? Like he just sent some silly meme, but it's yeah, just like, this is the kind of thing you can imagine someone's uncle posting on Facebook. And yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's Joe Rogan texting it to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me also with Elon, obviously, there's a few people, I'm just saying folks that people know, also Jim Keller, who's uh, worked with Elon. Uh, so I've had conversations with them because it's just my line of work. They're realizing that everything is possible in this world. Yeah, yeah. Which is not the Russian mindset. Yeah. Well, okay. All right. That's, let's... Style it down a notch. Style it down a notch. Yeah, it's uh, what uh, what Elon calls first principles thinking, but really it's just not being limited by the constraints of the past. Yes. And so saying like, okay, this is how things have been done, but can be done much, much better. And um, that has to do with manufacture. Like, how do we how do we do this 10 times cheaper? Like everyone says it's the, it's super expensive, but is it does it really need to be? This is more of a question about manufacture, about how to take, build a product, how to actually have a product that scale that uh, has an impact. And just having a very serious engineering, like to the level of physics uh, discussion about building a thing and fucking doing it and just being around people that did it. And, uh, you know, basically, literally or figuratively said fuck you to everybody in the room that said they can't do it. And that that energy, so that I've gotten to know Elon a lot better in 2021. That to me, it's like everything, the whole thing, that moving here and being surrounded by that optimistic energy and then the individual interactions with people that refuse to be like brought down by the, yeah, the cynicism the of the world. The naysayers, yeah. The naysayers. It's, um, that to me is what I'm gonna remember this year for. And I hope it like materializes into a something concrete here in Austin. And I feel it's it's doing that. I really am curious to be a fly on the wall. I'm sure it'll happen at some point, watching you and Elon talk to each other. Because <laughs> he's even more of a robot than you. He was on the Babylon B podcast and I was honored to be able to be in the room while this was happening. And with the guys at the B do um, at the end of every podcast, they have like like ten questions. I don't think this remember this is one of those. No, no, this and they go to Elon. Um, would you would you rather be Batman or Iron Man? You know, because mm -hmm. they're both like multi million industrialists. And Elon, being Elon, is like, well, let's think this through. There's different kinds of bats. You've got you know fruit bats and you got insect bats. 
why it's called Batman. Batman can sure fly, right? Bats can fly. And then, you know, Iron Man, and I'm just sitting there with the holy dude, just answer the question. <laughs> like, what? It was yeah. so literal. I was yeah. like, damn. I guess by this point, uh, I've released a podcast with him. That's uh, several hours, and it's exactly as, as as you would imagine. It's exactly as you would imagine. There was this. It's super the movie, technical. Her, the movie Her. Yes, of course. So there's that one scene. It's when um, what is it? Joaquin. Fe- who's the lead character? Le- yeah, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, so he's the lead, and he falls in love with Siri, basically, who's played by Scarlett Johansson. And at there's another artificial AI that she's talking to. And she's like, oh, can I, uh, permission to go into nonverbal communication with this professor? Mm-hmm. And, and the guy's like, sure. And they just start talking to each other in their robot. And I'm just imagining the two of you having this mind meld. Well, that, so there's a, both the humor of that, but also the practical nature of the kind of conversations we have. It's, it's so great because it's, uh, it's problem solving mode. Okay, so yeah, cool. yeah, okay. It's so, that, so that cool. That is fun, that is exciting. Because like you stop, completing sentences, I actually feel at home because you don't need to say the full sentences right. anymore. You could just like say random words and you start to understand yeah, yeah. what you're talking about. And then you can have multiple conversations at the same time and go on these tangents. One of the biggest problems I have with podcasting for me talking, I have to finish my sentences. I have to actually finish making a point, Yeah, which is a big problem because there's like a listener it needs to hear the point being finished as opposed to completing your uh, sentences uh, in, inside your own mind. And like the, the, th- the thing I find is useful to Elon does the exact same thing is when the line of thinking is no longer useful, you just ran, you just switch to yeah. the next thing. You just leave that whole thing behind. You don't need a nice transition. You don't need any of that. And also just, uh, it's the first principles thing. It's like zooming in on the on the elephant in the room. I love that. It's so energizing. It's just that that's what I love about engineers. It's not the it's not it's not the maybe most eloquent communication style, but I um I love it. What about you? So you said moving the book. The book. What else? Um and you've been really excited about so that's Anarchist Handbook, but you've also been nonstop excited about White Bill. That was most of this year. You've yeah. been actually made significant progress. Yeah, I'm on page 40 of the second draft. And it's really kind of funny because when you're doing your, I think, 10th book, I lost track already. Um, the first draft is actually pretty good. Like I'm going back and like, all right, this is going to be a whole slog. I'm like, oh, I just have to cut and paste this and basically tweak a few words. So... um I, I did a good job with the first draft. It's uh, it's also funny when you're writing um, how, and I guess this is the mark of a good professional writer, The my personal feelings don't match how the characters in the book come off. Like yeah. I have a, a lot of fondness um, for people like Ale- Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman and they're early on in the book. But they're not good people. Like, and I'm writing, and I'm writing it objectively, and whatever. And I'm reading this. I'm like, they come off much worse than my personal um, appraisal of them. Mm. Um, so it's kind of interesting as a writer when you're watching it. Uh, I guess kind of like an attorney, right? Like you can have a situation where you, as an attorney, you have a lot of fondness for your client, but you realize that they probably did this thing, or you could 
not it could be the other way like they're innocent but you, you you're, it's hard for you to make a good case for them because the data is not there can you actually talk about your writing process sure. in several ways so one your writing process but two by way of advice of how how to write you, you've talked about in the past like your your first draft is these kind of uh d disparate or more chaotic and that you yeah, don't yeah. in the same way maybe I, I was saying in the engineering discussion you, you don't complete the sentences it's yeah, just like so thoughts the first like real good writing advice I remember getting was this book by Peggy Noonan called What I Saw at the Revolution. Um, and she was Ronald Reagan's speechwriter. Uh, she still writes for the Wall Street Journal. Um, I The book I bought was at a used bookstore in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania when I was in college. And the spine is cocked. I still have it. It was 99 cents. Um, and she talked, you know, when you're writing for a president, this is no joke especially for a president who's as no the great communicator Reagan you know so and you have to, you have to be very inspirational but also not come off as corny which is very hard to do and she in the book talks about how she wrote speeches for him how she you know I'm paraphrasing her and this I haven't read her book in a couple of decades but basically she would write like a brain dump and it's just garbage and she's like that's okay just get it all out there um and then you know there's that expression all writing is editing so for the white pill specifically, this is, I don't know if it's the most ambitious book I've ever done. Dear Reader, I think is more ambitious because that's all of North Korea's history and it's written somebody else's voice and that person's a Martian. And you, like you mentioned, you had to read a giant number of yeah, books. Yeah, 60 books as, as research, yeah. Well, maybe can we just pause? Can you say what white pill is about? Sure, it's a tale, it's, it's about hope. And it's a tale of good and evil. And I think that's, I, I don't want to tip my hand too much. Okay. But- People are always like, how do you think, why are you so hopeful? And I'm not hopeful on an emotional level. I'm hopeful because looking at history, I think there's certain things that not, not will certainly happen again, but it's not at all implausible to happen again and that the, the good guys will win. And this is one of those cases. So, you know, I had, the book took on a life of its own. It's very different from how I originally conceived it. I originally conceived it as a, kind of retelling of Camus' philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, Ryan Holiday, um, who we used to be close friends with, I haven't talked to him in a while, he has a whole kind of cottage industry based on the Stoics of the past. I'm like, okay, can I ask him once, can I do this with Camus? He said, sure. And then I reread Camus in a, uh, recently and it wasn't what I was had remembered. Oh, so can we pause on that? I apologize to interrupt. So it's interesting. So he kind of took ideas from Stoics and started to kind of... Um, use it as a book that gives you advice about how to live life from the stoic yeah. perspectives. And you were thinking, is there something in existentialism, absurdism, or something specifically in Camus thinking, or I think you've mentioned the myth of Sisyphus, yes. specifically like his philosophical work. Yeah. So you were trying to see like, is there, can I resurrect this? That's actually, uh, I would think that's an interesting project. And it's it's sad to hear that it was uh, it didn't materialize in exactly that form because I thought there would be a lot in that. So I had Douglas Murray on my show, and he also made the point like when you go back and read Camus, there's not that much there. The myth of Sisyphus is not at all how I remembered it. Yeah, the vast bulk of that book is like literary criticism. So he's talking about Dostoevsky and all these different people who are embodiments of the absurd. But I'm like, this isn't. There's not much to take from here. Yeah. This, the actual title essay is basically like a like six chapter uh, essay at the back of the book, which you know it's 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 good for what it is. But there's not that much there to draw. I'm extremely 
um, he's a great hero of mine. I think his life is just enormously admirable. He fought very hard against the you know the Nazi occupation. Uh, his book, The Plague, which I find unreadable, is an allegory about you know, you know Germany conquering France and so on and so forth. Wait a minute, why is the plague unreadable? It's the kind of book where reading the book doesn't add anything to the plot. The plot is a plague comes, sweeps over the town destroys a lot of life and vanishes as quickly as it came. You don't need to read the book now. Like, you get the point. That, I, I deeply disagree with Have you? you. Uh, okay. Yes, of course I've read The Plague. To me, I mean, The Plague is about the doctor, and it's about love, and it's about the different roles that humans take in a time of tragedy, like The Plague. Uh, also, it's an allegory. So you can start to think about, like, what, you know, you could, whether it's Nazi Germany, whatever you think that is. Yeah. Um, to me, though, that was about love and about like the role, like the the highest ideal being the doctor, that, like sacrifices themselves for others, and like still has love and hope. I mean, I, to me, it, that the way that story is told, I think, has a lot of meaning. It's like it, it, to me, you saying that's interesting. You, you say it this way, but to me, it's like saying Animal Farm doesn't need to be read because it's an obvious story. I don't think there's much plot to the plague. I think Animal Farm has a right. very long plot and a complex plot. But there's experiences within. So the situation is set up in plague and there's experiences that start to reveal a philosophy. So yeah, it's not very plot driven. Yeah. But but the so I, I would say you still should read it, but the plot doesn't like you you didn't give away anything currently. Right, that that's so. It's, some books are just. I mean, Ayn Rand is similar to that in a sense. Like the plot is not as important as the behavior of the different people in that plot. I think she's very plot heavy. No, she has plots, but I'm saying that's not necessarily the important thing. To me, the behavior of the people is the important thing. Sure, but you could you could you could like separate it into a bunch of blog posts, and they stand on their own. I, I would have to think about that with Ayn Rand. She she does, through the plot, create a world where you start to understand right. the different values that people have. But yeah, but that's what the plot serves. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, I, would, have to, I would have to think. But in The Plague, it's the behavior of the people that's really important. And the same, I mean, The Stranger too. I mean, these like, um, I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying to scramble here for books I, I really appreciate that don't have a plot. I mean, uh, no, uh, notes from underground. So obviously, Dostoevsky has a huge amount of plot in, in in most of his work. Herman Hesse has a huge amount of plot. Thomas Mann doesn't have the plot. He's the one who doesn't have plots. Thomas right? Mann. Would you say Kafka has a plot? I think Kafka's very heavy plot driven. Yeah, but I just don't see that. I guess. I guess a, Metamorphosis doesn't really have a plot. Yeah, but when there's like crawling around. But it's like a vignette. It's not really like this. It's not, a short, it, yeah. yeah. A Hunger Artist, one of my probably favorite short stories is that kind of a short story. It's a pretty long short story of Kafka's. is really interesting. It's, a, it's about a man. I don't know if you read it. No, it's, I think so. Um, it's about a man that uh, is, a, is like a freak in the sense that um, his skill is that he can fast for a long time. Okay. And then people gather on the cage and look at him as he 
as he fasts. I don't actually remember if he's in a cage or not, but the, and uh, eventually he fasts so long that people don't even care anymore. Like they just leave. So there's a, there's a, it, it has to do something. I, it makes me think about like, don't become the way you live. Don't become a, like a, a freak show, a circus act. Like live for an ideal, live live for um, something that brings you joy. Or don't live for the sake of attention. For the sake of attention, that's a good yeah, that's, put, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, you, I rudely interrupted because you were talking about the plague and connecting it to the writing process of white pill. Yeah. Well, anyway, so you know how I was writing this one. I just had a a first draft of notes, and they were. It's not in chronological order. It's like I read certain books as research, and then I had the pull quotes that was necessary there. Um, and now I'm basically rearranging everything and putting it. So I, the book started as Ryan Holiday's, right? The equivalent yes. of Ryan Holiday as Camus. The working title would have been The Point of Tears, uh, because this is great. Camus, a great quote maker, and he has this line about man must live, live to the point of tears, uh, which I think is just what I love about him is like, Camus, you always, he comes off as like he's clenching his teeth. He's clenching his teeth both in terms of like barely mitigated rage at injustice. Like when he sees people suffering, it just it just yeah. really makes him like just upset to the core. But also this sense of uh, not taking life for granted and kind of just pushing yourself and pushing the boundaries and and you know his point being that life is inherently meaningless, which gives a great opportunity to impute meaning to it you know, to create our own meaning. To life. So, taking the 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 main essay from Sisyphus, um, Myth of Sisyphus, that was the the origin story for the white pill. But then it became something completely yeah. different. And so then it became, how are you so optimistic in the face of everything that's going on in the world? And I started writing it when COVID started hitting, <laughs> and I, because again, I'm not optimistic because of some temperament of my temperament of mine. I'm optimistic because. You know, people talk about how oh, if the U.S. didn't exist, China would just become an empire and take over everything. Empires are expensive, and they're they they like look at the British Empire. You know, look at the Soviet Union. Like, it's not automatically sustainable. It costs a lot of a lot of things to make sure when you're geographically, you know, all over the all over the world, literally, to keep everyone in line. It's not at all. Like a supervillain in a movie, like once it happens, it's the happy ending for them. So, yeah, that was the start. And I'm like, all right, let me tell. Um, one thing I'm good at is telling stories. So, this is really a. a so, this is pl narrative uh, plot driven. Very, very plot driven. And also heavily character driven, but the characters are real. Yeah, got it. So, it's interesting to kind of mention. What kind of what does the first draft kind of look like in terms of what what kind of things do you plop down? Oh, so it'll be like let's suppose I just read a, like you know some book called The Guillotine at Work, which was an early book attacking Lenin from the anarcho-communist perspective. So it'll just be like all the different quotes, like a paragraph here, double space, another paragraph, you know, blah blah blah, um, so on and so forth. Whereas for other sections where I wasn't just using a book as research there would be like talking about McKinley getting shot. Like it's just me writing the narrative um, and that I could just pretty much copy paste into the second draft. By way of advice, would you give 
that as advice? Is that a good way to do it? Is that a very peculiar way your brain works? No, so this is this is actually advice I feel comfortable giving to people who are trying to write. Uh, because it's just like with the gym, right? If you did seven sets, seven, excuse me, reps last week and you did eight this week, it's psychologically motivating because you're going in the right direction and the human mind extrapolates. So make sure, tell yourself, I'm going to get a page done today or two pages done. Sit your ass in front of the computer. You're not allowed to get up to get those two pages. It doesn't matter if they look like garbage because if you have a 300 page first draft and it's crap, at least you have something to work with and that's a big number. So if you're going to, the thing is, since the first draft is going to be crap, if you're editing as you write, it's going to be extremely discouraging. And it's also trying to drive and, and doing reverse at the same time. It's, it's a completely nonsensical way to do it. Get it all out there. Don't look it over. If you have a great line, put it in your phone and then add it to the, the, the draft. So it'll be a complete slog. But editing that slog is going to be a lot easier than creating it to begin with. And when you see those disparate lines all laid out on the page, how difficult is it to then start stitching it together? Do you find that the th when you look at a list of those things, the final product will look very different? Yes. Or will you actually use those lines? No, I, all, I will use those lines. Then I have a, a file called scraps. So like if the line's no longer used, I put it in my scrap pile. <laughs> I'd love to see what's in the scrap pile. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, one of the things I've been pulling scraps is a lot of times when I was earlier writing, I would have contemporary references. And I realized that that's bad because I want the the to the reader to be in the past as the present. So if, if you're talking about, let's say, 1901, and then you're referring to Obama, that screws people up. So I, I had to pull all those. Okay, let's talk about some New Year's resolutions. Do you ever do New Year's resolutions? Do you ever think like that? Like take a special day in the year to think about how you're gonna to try to change yourself? Or you, do you try to transform yourself every single day when you wake up? Well, I usually have several projects I'm working on at once. So there's always incremental progress on those. Right. But um, like, it, it, you know, it's nice to have a deadline. By the end of 2022, I'll accomplish this. Kind of a, like to hold yourself responsible. And then you could do that at the, end, at the beginning of the year to think about that. Both philosophically, like what kind of, big, not not projects that you can quantify, but more like, how can I change my life? Or like I mentioned, take the leap of different kinds. And then there's specific things like finish the book. I, years ago, and I'm, I'm, I think on some level, you much less than me, but I think you're increasing in this direction. I realized it's more, I have to learn how to be a, a surfer and not a driver. Because when you reach the level we're at in our careers or in our place in the culture a lot of this is luck yeah. and a lot of this is just like like i'm just going along for the ride because it's kind of counterintuitive like you know like the success of the anarchist handbook was counterintuitive um so all i'm hoping for is you know getting the book done i am extremely proud of it um and and just also you know, building a, you know, we had Thanksgiving together at, at Blair's house, just building a great uh, upcoming community here in Austin, which is, is, has happened very quickly. I was, there was going to be another um, surprise here. There's a girl named Natalie um, Sidesurf, and she makes these ultra realistic cakes 
Like if you've seen those cakes online where it looks like you're cutting a puppy, mm -hmm. like she makes those kind of things. So she's here. Um, in Austin? Yeah, you know, oh, cool. so. Like moved permanently? I think she's been here for a while. I've never, I haven't met her yet, but I just kind of uh, chatted with her. So there's just, it's just so many, there's so many um, scenes happening here um, that are overlapping. So in general, finish the book, keep building a community. I mean, you've already been doing that here. You've been here several months. I've been making a point to introduce people to each other and everyone's just really getting along very well. That's great. And the book is the focus. The book is the focus. What about the podcast that you're doing? You're welcome. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I enjoy it and it's been growing a lot. I finally got a new computer, mm -hmm. uh, which my friend Jay installed so I can have a decent camera because of my old, um, this is my mindset as a hoarder. Like I was more interested in spending money on a Pareto autograph than actually getting a computer that's from the 20th century. Um, so, but I, 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 I'm such an old school person in that in my head, podcasts are like so ephemeral. Like, yeah. I don't, like, there's some episodes of my podcast I'm really proud of. And there's a lot of friendships I've made as a result of it that really mean a lot to me. No question. It's made my life a profoundly better place. But it's not the same as that book on the shelf, especially when the book is something that I think matters much more than I do. Yeah, there's a permanence to it. There's a seriousness to laying down the words on paper. Yeah. Like really giving them thought. Yeah. That's true. But podcast, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. You're just, you're just, you don't listen to podcasts much, which no. is fascinating to. <laughs> yeah, like at all. And I like, I don't know how mine is so successful. Like yeah. it's just, gar it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I just love the medium. Uh, yeah, but you're, I, I love the authenticity, the the realness of the medium. That's really nice. I just uh, understood for the, it's, it's starting to click because um, like my pal Blair White, she was just on Rogan. And the first 10 minutes, I, I was I was so angry. Like I was sitting there like yelling at the screen because mm -hmm. Joe and Blair, you would think that they're going to start talking about, you know, Trump or trans issues or moving to Austin. They start talking about shark reproduction yeah. And neither of these dumbasses knew anything about it. And yeah. I know a lot about it. And they're yeah. like, oh, is it like this? Or do the sharks lay eggs? And I'm sitting there. I'm like, if you don't know why you're talking about this, why? <laughs> why are you talking? And yeah. I could also see why people like these shows because they feel like they're friends of the people, like they're sitting in the room. Because yeah. I felt like yeah. I was in that room and I wanted to shake both of them. You're in the room. So no, what about transforming yourself? Any, any resolutions like that? Oh, yeah. I'm doing a slight bulk now. So I'm almost at my heaviest weight ever, but I've been, I couldn't go to the gym this week because I was a little under weather. Under weather. Um, so that's been a little frustrating, but yeah. So uh, are we going to get some more modeling picks? What are we, what's, what, are, what's, is there goals there? So my heaviest, I've, I'm, I'm four eight. The heaviest I've ever been was when, and this is when I was like, he's exaggerating. He's not at that. Tall. That's the metric. Um, Oh, sorry. Are you talking about your height? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, barely four six. So the heaviest I've ever been when I was like really high body fat because I was just because I learned because I couldn't gain weight as a kid. So when I figured out I could actually gain weight, I like I was one sixty four point five. So I want to hit one sixty five, uh, and then see take it from there. I have a friend uh, who's been helping me, my buddy Trey Goff. And this kid's stronger. His uh, Jake. His username on Instagram is stronger. Both the number five instead of the letter. Nice. The, the number five said the letter S, but he does um, 
I've never, it looks like it's Photoshop, like your brain can't process it. You know the human flag? Uh, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. But the... He does human flag push ups. Wow. So he is horizontal, parallel to the ground, right? He's holding himself up yep. like a flag, but he could also do, do this while, so he's moving parallel to the mm -hmm. earth side to side while it's just crazy that's uh, really difficult so you oh you're interested in that kind of stuff so no but i'm saying like he's been helping me out so like the guy knows what he's doing he's just a really impressive kid i love that kind of stuff like uh body weight stuff so yeah my primary mode of working out it's very like the perfect you ever seen leon like the professional that uh with natalie portman that yeah. movie it's, it's like i have a pull-up thing as you push-ups and pull-ups it's very like um i'm just missing the milk I like working out at home just like that. Um, and the, the body weight stuff, you can go so much with it. And it's super functional for everything else you live in, for life, for living life well. I'm yeah. on the other hand, I don't care about functionality. The thing that really bothers me, like I go, I, I know Joe's thinking of opening up a gym, mm -hmm. like a private gym. There's only like one power cage here at, at the Golds I go to. Yeah, I don't know what source that there's only one or that sometimes people aren't using it. I'm like, no one's doing deadlifts in here? No one? Just me? Yeah. It's golds. Uh, by the way, I don't want to say where. I'll tell you off my. But there's there's a, there's a few really like ghetto places around Austin that are just like these shitty gyms that nobody wants to go to. But they have a rack. They have like if you want to lift heavy, that kind of stuff. But are they twenty four hours? That's the thing. Golds. Oh, but there are twenty four hours in the following way. There's a code. Okay. And you just go in. Okay. And you turn on the lights. That's fine. And then you work out. I don't want to meet. I don't want to meet people. Exactly. Well, actually, it's not true. The people. Like, no, sometimes there's people and they're great. Yeah. Like, and and I've had fans come up to me at goals and they've all been cool, except, except. Oh no. Except. Except. If I have my headphones on. Yep. And I'm doing deadlifts. Yep. I don't need you to come over, tap my ear, and start giving me critiques about my form. This actually happened. Yes. I'm still angry about it. I'm pulling my 150 in peace. Thank you. Yeah. People are hilarious. I was uh, recently in, uh, had actually the wildest day ever in my life. Oh. So many things happened in a row. So I went to a, a wedding in LA. Andrew? Uh, Andrew Schultz's yeah, yeah. and with Whitney Cummings and, and, and Joe Rogan and a bunch of other fascinating people. It's just, Speaking of weirdos, there's the comedian, like the reason I find the comedians awesome, one, they're authentic, they're just cool people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're also just weird. Like you don't become a comedian for not being like fucked up in all kinds of different interesting ways. Anyway, so there's the wedding. I'm, um, you know me, it, it was only carbs at the wedding. So I didn't eat, I didn't oh, eat God. for a long time before. So I, I was like already fasted 20 hours, 25 hours. And by, so that this whole story of everything that happens is, is Lex like 40 hours fasted with Joe Rogan drinking a lot of whiskey. And so- You were drinking too? Oh, heavy. On 40, oh my God, that's crazy. So it is calories. That was my only source of calories is the whiskey. And I, so I didn't trust myself with carbs when I'm drunk. I just don't enjoy it because I'll forget. And I, I just enjoy eating like a strict healthy diet when I'm drunk because um, I'd rather eat more food that's healthy yeah, yeah. versus not. And so anyway, so then we went to, to Vegas together and then uh, 
just kept doing wild thing after another wild thing. Uh, uh, Rogan opened up for Whitney Cummings. He just like showed up at a random party that he wasn't invited and he did a thing. He almost started a fight because some guys said, stop, yelled at him, said, stop spreading misinformation. Uh, and then uh, we run into David Goggins out of all, this is my first time meeting David Goggins. I, I've talked to David a lot uh, over the phone and we were supposed to do a thing together. And this is me trash out of my mind, meeting David for the first time with his incredible wife, uh, Rogan's wife was there. By the way, uh, Joe Rogan's wife, David's wife, made me realize that I really want to be married because they're not, they make um, their partners better. Yeah. Like that, I was, um, there's a certain aspect of marriage that I'm afraid of that like your partner takes you away from life. You don't get to experience life as much. Um, but this was like, they were enriching them. I don't know. It was like a, the, the world's most powerful support group. It was cool. Anyway, so then, of course, Drunk Lex is, uh, challenges Goggins to push-ups. I it's, saw this on Instagram, whatever So it was. we're in the me middle of the And casino. you're in your suit. In, the, in this suit, in the middle of the casino, there's a crowd gathering. It, like, it's Joe Rogan, me and David Goggins, and I'm just doing push-ups with him. And Rogan is, like, commentating and yelling and screaming. It was, it was surreal. And just going on to the next thing and next thing and next thing like this and then drove um all the way from vegas back to uh to la with with joe and whitney and his wife and it was like what what is this and all of it is done in 24 hours the one valuable lesson is don't fast and drink like excessively so I, i've learned that because uh what happens is um Liquor hits your mind, my mind, sorry, I'll, I'll speak about my particular mind. Like the intellectual part of my brain got hit really hard, really fast. So I was not able to even more so than usual stitch together sentences. I understood everyone really well. <laughs> so it like made you an immigrant again. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> so like meeting David, I want to say so many things. He's so inspiring to me, right? But all I said was like, hello. <laughs> And I, and I like, I, I remember like opening my mouth to like try to say more and I was like, and then I would just close my mouth and not be able to say anymore. And yeah, I don't, just, this is why I don't, this is one of the reasons I don't drink ever. Yeah. It removes certain barriers. Like it allows you to maybe have fun that you wouldn't otherwise, but yeah, definitely for a person who values intellectual eloquence. And, but I okay. also hate being hung over. The hungover part, That's yeah. That's the worst. Yeah, it's the worst. And you also like, I did this to myself. Yeah. But it also teaches me that this too shall pass because uh, I've been hungover and I've quit drinking so many times in my life that it realizes, it makes you realize that all the unpleasant feelings, all you have to do is just wait it out and but it'll be fine. It took me a, a long time to realize that that expression means the other thing. What's the other thing? If things are going great, this too shall pass. Yeah. I always thought Life about suffering. It, no, I always thought about it as being more like, don't worry if things are bad, it'll pass. It's like it's also like don't, if something's going great, it's not gonna be this way forever. It's like Bukowski said, love is a fog that fades with the first daylight of reality. Do you think love can last? Oh yeah, we're gonna win. Who's we? The good guys. Didn't Hitler also think he's the good guys? He's wrong. <laughs> you know why? Why? He didn't win. <laughs> <laughs>
So you think it's permanent? So the, the this one time the good guy's winning, it will last. It it, it won't pass. Because I, I think all of it passes, unfortunately. I think we're going to win and win big in the not so distant future. Do you have specific things in mind or no? Or just a sense about human civilization, about society waking up? I don't know about waking up, but I think the um, increased understanding on all sides of the political spectrum that um, corporate America and corporate news outlets uh, are self-motivated actors and those motivations are often inimical to what others would regard as desirable is something that I think is happening with uh, increasing frequency. So what do you think about uh, the, the the political landscape in general? You had a great conversation with Glenn Beck and he said that uh, he talked to Trump and believes that Trump is, uh, Donald Trump is definitely running in 2024 or very likely running in 2024. Uh, I think he said he thinks he'll have a good chance of winning or I don't remember that, but the, the fact that he was running was a surprise to you. Do you think uh, Donald Trump would be running in 2024? Uh, given that Glenn Beck ha you know, has a much better relationship with Trump than I do, to put it mildly, uh, if Glenn Beck is certain this is going to happen, I would defer to Glenn Beck's judgment. Um, do you think he has a chance of winning? Do you think he'll win? Anyone in a binary political system who's the nominee has a chance. Like yeah. whoever the Republican or Democrat has, has a chance. I think also it's a lot easier to vote for someone that you have voted for in the past. So that's why incumbents have a big advantage. There's not that psychological barrier to cover. I think it's also useful for Trump that he's banished from social media because then he doesn't have to have the responsibility of governing um, and the, all the costs of that, you know, because no matter what decisions you make while governing, some people aren't going to like that. Um, so he gets to kind of be uh, above the radar or below the radar, rather, to, uh, to some extent. I don't think it's at all a given that he would get the nomination. Uh, when I say the good guys are going to win, I certainly don't mean Donald Trump. Uh, I don't think victory is going to come as a consequence of Washington. You don't um, want to make America great again? I think America is great. So, uh, you know, this is my failed attempt at humor. Uh, one of many. Uh, there, there are also hats that Giuliani and Jim Jeffords wore that said, "People can look this up." They said because they were south of the border, "Make Mexico great again." Also, <laughs> <laughs> like that to me it was like, like, <laughs> like just the syntax there. Uh, okay. So you 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 don't even think he might get the nomination? If you who else might? I mean, they if you had asked two year three years out who the nominee in twenty twenty would be, Donald Trump wasn't even or twenty sixteen rather wasn't even on the on the radar screen. So we have a long way to go. Uh, DeSantis two years is, is a long way to go. Yeah, huh. um, especially because. We're coming out of COVID. There might be some governor who becomes a rock star for some reason. Maybe someone's going to have some moment. Some congressman might have some big moment where they're, you know, screaming at somebody and all of a sudden they become a rock star in the Republican Party. Or it could uh, be one of the celebrities we don't um, think about. I mean, Donald Trump is essentially not a political figure before he right, ran. Exactly. So, so it could be any of the famous Republic, like um, right-leaning celebrities. Uh, 
I don't even know which way McConaughey le- uh, leans. No, I think he's the lefty, or he was going to run as a Democrat, but he's not running. But but like people like that just might step into the ring. Yeah, I don't think they'd have that much of a chance because I think the Republican Party there's a, an asymmetry. They'd be much more skeptical of like an actor than the Democrats would be because they would regard that actor as coming as a kind of um, mentoring candidate or whatever. Right, but there's other kinds of celebrity like uh, Jocko could run as a as a Republican. That's a good example. Yeah, yeah. That would be interesting. So military person. Right, right. yeah. Right. But already, like, for example, Dr. Oz is thinking of running for, is going to run for the Senate in Pennsylvania. Oh. And there's already been a lot of research, people slamming him on Twitter and social media for past positions he's taken. So, um, you know, DeSantis is the figure of the moment, but Scott Walker was the figure of the moment in the 2016 cycle, and he didn't even make it to Iowa. Yeah, and I wonder what role does COVID play in all of this? Right. In terms of, um, you know, I'm I'm mostly optimistic and hopeful about the world. Like when I look at the world, I'm excited by most things. I've been a little bit uh, or a lot disappointed by the lack of great leadership in a time of trouble. Because to me, one of the, uh, one of the great things about a difficult time is it brings out the great leaders. Again, it's the up and down things. Like you don't want to ask for war, you don't want to ask for pandemics, but when they happen, um, it's it's a great opportunity for the human spirit to flourish. And the fact that it didn't quite in the way that I hoped it would is disappointing. I think there's still time too, because people are trying to figure out what to do as we emerge from the fog. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited by 2024. Somebody said this dark, cynical thing. I I hope this is not true, but like that, there was some doubt about the results of the election in in 2020. That in 2024, both sides, like it'll it'll just start becoming standard to completely reject the results of an election, no matter who wins. Well, that's my perspective. I don't regard elections as legitimate. Um, and I see what you're saying, not in the terms of that, that basically the process itself was illegitimate. Yes, there was like cheating or something. Yeah, but I think that that's pretty much a given. Uh, it has been a given. Like it's the Republicans often say, oh, they got all these illegals to vote, you know, or the Democrats will say the voting machines were hacked or the media, so on and so forth. Um, because despite all the people flapping their gums about democracy, they only like democracy when it gives them the results that they want. Can I ask you about something else that Glumbeck said that I thought was really interesting? I, sure. I agree with him very much on this. And it was refreshing to hear, although he kind of made a, turned it into a point about why Trump is great or whatever. Um, but the point was the following, which is he doesn't want to talk to anybody who can't say at least one nice thing about everyone. So like, if you don't like Donald Trump, if you don't like Joe Biden, you should still be able to say one nice thing, like legitimate nice, not just like a dismissive nice thing, but legitimately say what is one nice thing they did or like, uh, or who they are as a person. Not not like saying Donald Trump is funny sometimes. Like, no, like le- legitimate where you really mean it. And it's been really troubling to me how few people are, are able to do that about political figures. I had a lot of people I think I tweeted something like this leading up to the election saying like, you, sh- you should be able to say something nice about 
both Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And I've had um, old friends, um, I, I don't wanna say specific, I guess, to, to call them out, but they, several people, and one in particular, like wrote me this long, like several page email. It saying, was Sam. It was Sam Harris. Was it Sam Harris? Sam Harris. No, uh, but <laughs> uh, I have a lot of conversations with Sam Harris now and Joe on both sides. It's yeah. like the devil and the, the angel on both my, I don't know which one is which, but. Just the angel. <laughs> they're both devils. Different kinds of devils, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, and they said, how could you say, how could you even consider like that there's something positive about Donald Trump? Yeah, here's an easy one. He uh, He has three wives, with three kids with each, but they all the kids get along. I think that's really commendable yeah. that Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump and Barron can all get along with each other, given the circumstances. And I think that speaks to something as some someone as a father, yeah. Ivanka. So on, on the family level, and I, I, I see the same thing with actually, uh, one of the reasons I always found Joe Biden fascinating is he's had a lot of really traumatic things happen in his life. Yeah. And uh, if I shit my pants in front of the Pope, I'd be traumatized too. I'm I'm talking to a master troll about something sensitive and beautiful that is a man suffering with a loss. I kind of know what he feels like right now. I'm pretending you're the Pope. <laughs> this chair's ruined. Sorry, oh. Elon. <laughs> you're gonna have to sit in it. Well, what uh, is this? Why is this chair feel <laughs> kind of like I'm sitting in a swamp? Or yeah, Lex, you have stuff to show. Can you afford a good chair? I'll, <laughs> I'll send you up and test them. It's a pretty good Elon impression. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, like one criticism I tell Joe uh, uh, Rogan is like he he has trouble finding one positive thing to say about Joe Biden, for example. And I just don't, I don't, I don't like that. I, I want, I think, I mean, I'm a big believer in the shit sandwich sticking on topic. I think here's an easy one. I think Joe Biden clearly is a very amiable person. Like, What's the amiable mean? It gets along with people. Like it seems really clear that maybe before president, because it's different when you're the president, but that he could call a lot of these Republican senators, get them on the phone and have a conversation with them. Yeah, and it's not some kind of manipulation. Or to some extent it is, because they're all politicians, but yes. they, he clearly seemed to be able to get, wasn't like a um, an ideologue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but there's, I mean, maybe I'm a sucker for that kind of thing, but uh, the blue collar thing, like riding the train, you know, the there, there's ways to connect with people and not it's seeing them as equals, no matter where their walks of life are. And I love it when presidents do that uh, to some degree because of uh, the wealth under which Donald Trump existed for a lot of his recent life. Yeah. He's less able to do that quite naturally. Um, Maybe sometimes Obama wasn't quite That's a able good question. to do that. I, who's more blue collar, Trump or Biden? And you, I, you can easily make the case for both. I think you could. No, not the blue collar, but like, like li literally be able to fit in at a bar, at a local bar, and just like I can relax. see both of them. Yeah, you're right. I can see both of them. Yeah. In, in fact, Obama doesn't quite. No, because he's got that Ivy League. Yeah, the Ivy League thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, somehow Donald Trump can too. Oh, easily, right. yeah. You can see him having a beer with the guys and yelling at the screen. This is bullshit. Change the channel. Yeah, I mean, I hope people do that. I think that's one of the most unpleasant things to me is um, they're not able to 
empathize with the fact that half the country voted for another well, person. Well, it's also then, it's just a bad strategy. If you can't figure out why half the country is voting yeah. for someone you guard as like a demon, well, then how are you gonna supposed to fight this demon? Yeah. Like, you know, when I did Dear Reader, the North Korea book, it's like, don't you want to understand how you, these people get to where they got? It's, and no one's saying that he's a good person, but like there's a logic to their, there's a method to their madness. You've uh, you've talked about national divorce a few times. I've I've seen a, f a couple of videos recently where you're <laughs> responding to articles. It's, it's kind of cool. Um, can you, can you talk about this idea of national divorce and as it stands today, uh, arguing for it maybe? And, and if you could, just out, out of curious in the context of those videos, if you can steal man an argument against. Uh, uh, so divorce. I was the first one to kind of bring this issue back into the national. Um, conversation. I wrote a piece for Observer in 2016. Then Jesse Kelly had a piece a few months after that. Dave Raboy just recently did a piece on his Substack earlier this year. Uh, and it's become enough of a mainstreamed idea that um, paleontology outlets like the National Review have felt the need to respond to them. So the point being that America has had at least two cultures since the beginning, and that there's absolutely no reason and these cultures in recent years, and this was in 2016, not mentioned 2021, have been increasingly antagonistic toward one another and have even lost the ability to communicate. They're using language in different ways. And that there's no reason for this to continue any uh, uh, further. Um, and, you know, just, you live your life, we'll live ours, and, you know, good goodbye and good luck. There's no harm, no ill will. Um, now, there's lots of arguments against them. Some of those are are completely, I think, stupid. Uh, the stupidest one is, well, that's what China wants. Okay, well, I, I mean, I'm not going to live my life saying, I'm just gonna do the opposite of whatever China wants. That That's yeah. that's not logic. That, that's not a good pathway. Now, they, I mean, I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but that's not a reason one way or another. Yeah, you bring up China or Russia, you know, that's exactly what uh, China or right. Russia want. But sort of the strong way to phrase that is, um, it weakens America, like n not just the one America, but like both sides in the divorce will be much weaker than they individually were together. So in that sense, not that you have to c care about what China thinks, but like it's a step, it's a big step backwards. Yes, I think in the short term, it is absolutely big step backwards in terms of power. Uh, there's no question that, you know, when you're trying to reestablish a society, there's going to be a transition period. That transition period is going to be costly. Uh, each side starts wondering, wait a minute, why are we still doing this? We don't have to anymore. We're not living with them, so on and so forth. So that's going to be a uh, concern. Um, I don't think that the whole point of America uh, or even a large or primary point of America is to be a bulwark against Chinese power. And there's going to be very few people on earth, you know, given my work, who have as much uh, informed hatred and, and contempt for the Chinese government as I do. Uh, certainly, um, you know, next to the North Korean people, maybe the people from um, Eritrea, there's few populations who I'm as worried about as uh, the people under the rule of the Red Chinese. My steelman argument is there's no way this is going to be peaceful because the lines don't separate out well. So all you're doing is basically just replicating the problem because the disparity isn't between, you know, like during the Civil War, North and South, it's like it's between New York City and upstate New York mm -hmm. or between Chicago, downstate Chicago. Once you get outside of LA and like Sacramento, 
uh, California in many ways is like Kentucky, so it doesn't make sense. So that's a strong argument. I mean, you've talked about that this process would be painful. Right. It can be pain, and, and we're not just talking about violence. It could be just, even the Civil War, you could divide it clean, somewhat cleanly. Obviously, the kind of national divorce you might be suggesting is uh, yeah, people are living amongst each other. So you have to literally right. move, it's complicated. Right, so that is a very strong argument. It's, a, I think, a cogent argument against it. Two is, it's not just China, it's that there's a lot of bad actors in the world who maybe aren't, like China certainly wants to carry itself and have an appearance, at least on the world stage, as civilized and, and, and a leader. There's lots of smaller countries who, without us, are going to feel comfortable doing some very nefarious things. Um, and uh, they're not going to be scared of us anymore. And so that would be a bigger concern in many regards than China. So I think that's a reasonable one. Um, it could be that both sides, if this happens, are going to, instead of work toward better, are the things that make each side bad would get worse. Yeah, uh, And that's, you know, having those pushed towards the malevolent extremes is, I think, a very legitimate criticism and a concern. I mean, as you suggested, there's no guarantee that won't happen. Correct, at all. Also, there's, a, I think, a reasonable argument to make is like, are you, sh America, just as a symbol and the myth of America, and I don't mean myth in a negative sense, do you really want to throw that in the garbage? Like, yeah. this meant a lot for a lot of people and a lot for history. You're just going to be like, okay, good good work. We're, we're done here. Let's shut the lights. So that's, I think, a reasonable argument. So those are the... Um, biggest ones, I would and, say. And and still, what is the case for national divorce and along which lines? So like um, in making the case for national divorce, if it is desired, based on which kind of ideas do you think it should be uh, carried through? I, honestly, I don't know that it has to be idea based. Like for example, when Czechoslovakia broke up, when Norway and Sweden broke up, it wasn't really ideological. Um, it was more cultural. Um, so I always say divorce into two, but it would probably make more sense if it was like five uh, because the Northeast, certainly New England has their own culture. The West Coast has their own kind of culture. I don't know. The thing is, in any kind of um, persuasion technique, right? Like once people are start, it, it's, there's, there's a difference between convincing someone they want to buy a car and what features you want. So if you're at the point where we're arguing about the features, then my work here is done. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I don't have a dog in the fight in terms of what it's going to look like. I just want to get to the point where you're at least considering seriously the idea of, of breaking up America. And I would encourage people to go look at my article to see, uh, which I'm sure the, the arguments still hold uh, five years later. Do you have a kind of vision of which of the two or which of the five, like, do you actually have specific cultures or I'll, ideas. I'll tell you exactly. Yeah. If I told you and everyone listening in 2014, we weren't that long ago, it was not long ago, which of these two things is more likely to happen? 2014. Texas secedes or declares secession from America or Donald Trump gets elected president. Everyone's voting for Texas. Like if, yeah. in terms of prediction, which is more likely. So we had this one. So it's not at all unlikely we're going to have this one. See, I don't know if that logic carries through. You can't just say, here's an unlikely thing that happened, therefore anything can happen. I didn't say, you just earlier said anything could happen this episode, didn't you? Life is suffering. I wasn't <laughs> listening to half the things you're saying. You said it. 
I said it. Yes, you said anything can happen. I'm definitely not here. I'm like you with podcasts. I do a podcast, but I don't listen to it. That's <laughs> why I'm talking. talking. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, it can happen. But in which, I guess I'm asking, would you stay in Texas? 100%. So, yeah. Texas. And I'd run for office, probably. It'd be fun. Run. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be the first president of Texas. I attended a debate between uh, Yaron Brooks and Yoram. Hazoni. I don't know if you know who that is. The, the nationalist guy. Yeah. National, yeah, he wrote a book called The Virtue of Nationalism. Yeah, I read that book. And they actually did a podcast with him. They did a debate. Oh, they both run here? Mm -hmm. Okay. It was quite interesting. And I tried to wear my Michael Malice hat. So the- You're wearing it now. <laughs> <laughs> you borrowed that from me. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny because the metaphor applies across- all of these level of uh, collectivism. So he was arguing that for the power of nation, so you, he would be arguing against national divorce, but he was also arguing for marriage, the power of actual marriage between individuals. Like, um, I think he's a conservative. And what I really like about him is there's a clear philosophy of conservatism that he expresses. And I think a lot of people, get behind that philosophy because uh to me like conservatism and liberalism often is very kind of used loosely yes he has a clear philosophy that he's expressing there and is grounded in tradition he has a lot of value in tradition and so it's the thing you said about america like one of the one of the arguments against national divorce is like listen um we've been at it for a while like you, there is a lot of value yeah. in, in the fact that we've been at it for a while. Don't just throw it all away all the time. So he says like philosophically, he seems in a lot of walks of life, revolution is should be um, avoided as much as possible. Like, I agree. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. So he, he makes the case that there's something fundamentally powerful about the nation that we, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice way to group a culture. And uh, so the national divorce, I guess, goes against that. I mean, do you find some aspect of the virtue of nationalism, as you would put it, powerful? Well, powerful in, in, in a good sense? or In a good sense. So sorry, yeah, in a good sense. Like it, well, yeah. good, it brings out the best in humans. I don't know about the best, but it certainly brings out good things. I have that line I always say about I love my country. I hate the government because I love my country. Yeah. Um, so there is a love of country. I think it's, uh, but I, I don't know that that's the, I think, it's also the case because the country happens to be America. Like, I don't know if I was living in, you know, whatever, I don't want to insult someone's country. Um, uh, Canada, yeah. If I was living in Canada, I don't know that it'd be the Ocho This Patriot. is a guy who calls basically every other country shithole country. Yeah, that's true. That's yes. that's that's the fact, yeah. Yeah. So it's either, you're either, there's two types of countries, Texas or shitholes. Um, oh, wow, you went full Texas. So you, 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 you're okay burning the Northeast to the ground at this point. Okay, I'm hoping for it. I'm hoping. Uh, I, I, what they've done to New York City, I will never forgive these people. Um, and I hope that they suffer enormously uh, consequences for what they've done to New York. Um, it's it's unconscionable, uh, the assault that they've done and, and had no remorse over how many uh, creative outlets that they've destroyed. Yeah, it's the cultural hub, cultural center of the world yeah. in many, in many it's ways. Just, New York was, the sim this was the place where you go to put up your shingle and, and, and move the needle and make things happen. 
Uh, and I would understand if it was like, okay, we got to suffer through this for a year, but we're going to make sure all these businesses have a kind of safety net to make sure that they kind of get through and survive this, which they did to the banks in 2008, for example. Um, and I'm saying this as an anarchist and there was none of that. So I, I, I burn it down and, and salt the earth. Uh, it's, it's, it, cause it's like watching like a zombie. It's un, it's unnatural. It's, it's an abomination. Uh, so I mean, I mean, sort of on the on the white pill side of things, I I don't know about you. Maybe I have a sense that uh, both Silicon Valley, that for me personally, maybe I have the same intensity of feeling as you do about New York. It's just disappointing to see it be uh, consumed with cynicism and a lot of other paralyzing forces. But I still have hope for that place. I think is maybe it's the. Uh, Yoram kind of tradition hope that through momentum the the strong reemerges. So like I have hope for New York. I th I think New York will continue like not maybe on a scale of years, but on a scale of decades. It would be ups and downs where it reemerges as a cultural center. I just can't imagine a place like New York is like Paris. There's going to be long stretches of time where it leads the world. Paris has not been a cultural hub for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the days of Matisse and Picasso are, and Gertrude Stein are long gone. It's still, it still is a hub. Even of, London uh, isn't London. Yeah. You know, you're not the... But what is then? London is still London. Paris is still Paris. Yeah, it's but just London... not the Paris of old. It's right. It's not London of old. London is still a place... It's a it's a tech hub. It's a fashion hub. It's a music hub. I mean, it's still a pretty strong hub. Yeah, but not like during the Beatles era, right? It's not like or during the Sex Pistols era. But that's it. Could be just us romanticizing the past. Because what is a hub then? No, it's not. We're not romanticizing the past because a hub is the place where everyone on Earth or our eyes are on you. So in the late '60s, the British in the mid '60s, excuse me, the British invasion, you know, the Kinks and all these other bands coming out of, of uh, uh, Great Britain, like they were the innovators. This was the this this was the place that was happening. Well, in, in that sense, like and Brooklyn, you know, 15 years ago. But I guess uh, maybe in that sense, in the 21st century, geographical hubs are becoming a thing of the past. So like, um, you can be a hub in the digital space now. So like, it's not. Maybe you'll never have. I don't think, I think there will always be, it, I mean, it, what I'm saying, digital space makes it easier for, let's suppose, Cleveland to be a hub. Right, because all you need like 10 people who happen to live in Cleveland, and, or, you know, Akron was a hub, a, a minor hub. All it takes is 10 to 50 people yeah. to create a, yeah. And maybe even less, maybe it's just uh, two or three or four but people. I, I mean, there's been no shortage of articles talking about Austin and what's happening here. Um, and I know some of Joe's plans and, and you and I and, and Blair and, and all these other people that we know. My buddy Andrew Heaton moved here. He's just one of the best people I know. It's just, I'm really, really excited. Can I ask you some weird thing about friendship? Of course. Because you mentioned uh, Sam, he's Mr. Harris to you. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and Joe, Didn't that bother you how he went after Joe? Uh, what did he, did he's he, like, oh, in case you guys have brain damage from watching Rogan's last episode, like, watch, here's the answer. And it's just oh, like, like digs like that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like that. I didn't like that either. Uh, I think Sam doesn't like it either about himself. Okay. Uh, he regrets those things. Because it's very easy to say from his perspective, look, this isn't the full side. Rogan didn't show you the full side of the story. 
here's the other side of the story. Please watch this and be informed. That's a very reasonable thing to say. Yeah, I don't quite understand this. So they, they do this about each other now. Um, I'll, I'll put three people on the table, which is Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, and, and Brett Weinstein. And they have a way of talking like the other person is creating a lot of harm. Like publicly would say things like that. And I understand there's emotion in it, but like these are human beings that are friends of yours. But I'll, I'll go the other way. Let's suppose it is true that Joe's doing a lot of harm spreading misinformation. Being sarcastic isn't going to be persuasive. Whereas if you're like, he's wrong, here's the facts, or here's or be informed that I, to me, but then I'm not Sam Harris. I'm not, a, he's got a bigger audience than me. So maybe he's the one who's right, I'm wrong. No, he's, well, he's just human. Okay, well, he's I can't human. relate. Well, have you seen your Twitter lately? I mean, your Twitter, you get very, you have a lot of fun on Twitter. I feel, sure. I feel like Twitter lets, I've never done that with someone I'm friends with. I never would. Okay, let's put that on record. It is on record. trolls me. Because uh, if there's an issue with you, I'm getting you on the phone. Yeah. Good. I mean, Because then I'm not backing you into a corner publicly. It doesn't make any sense strategically. Yeah. And actually, um, Brett Weinstein um, tweeted something, sort of criticizing something. I already forgot what. But he texted me first saying, like, is it okay if I tweet this? Yeah. And I I said, yep. Uh, Like, I was excited. Yeah. But I think there's some level of just be compassionate privately and be compassionate publicly. Like or both. be civil. C- civil. Yeah. I, 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 for some reason, I don't like the word civility because it, it's like polite. I like it. It's a. Uh, or be cordial. Is that better? No. What I mean is like. It seems phony to you. It seems phony. Like you should radiate love in whatever yeah. way. So even if you're rough with the other person, you should still show like respect and love for that person. And that, that gets back to the Russian rooms where they're yelling at each yeah, other, yeah, but yeah. there's still love underneath it. I mean, uh, the, the question I wanna ask for you is, uh, I think you and I have a different view on some things. Okay. We have a different approach to things, but just on, on the surface level, but also a different view on some things. Like, I have a lot of hope for institutions. I, I, I have, so uh, maybe it's a gut instinct. Like, your gut instinct is like, Centers of power are like burn them down first, and then let's figure it out. Sure, <laughs> like, or maybe that's a funny, rough way of no, saying I it. No, I think that's about right. And then for for me, it's like no, let's understand the institution and slowly um, revolutions from within versus revolutions okay. from without. And um, but like we can have those disagreements, and there may be times when those disagreements will be. I could see in the future, I could see I'll be attacked by my friend Michael Malice, which I very look forward to it. No, not attack, but you know what I mean, on the surface level, in the idea space. Anyway, because you're shaking your head now, you won't. I guess um, maybe this also goes to Sam Harris and uh, Joe Rogan. I would love to be able to disagree, disagree in big ways on important things and still be close friends. And I don't understand why those are, should be contradictions. Yeah. And that's the tension. That's been the most heartbreaking thing to me about Sam and Brett and Joe. With, in the case of Brett, it's me. I don't know Brett. So I'm just like looking as a somebody who just enjoys having these voices out there. And it seems like COVID just brought out the worst in some many folks. And it, it just feels like it's so sad to me to see their friendship s- somewhat deteriorating 
Or maybe I'm just being in a... Um, no, it seems clear that it's deteriorated enormously. Um, sad, but that's the case. Yeah, so my... Like, I've had people come at me because I'm friends with you. And they were like, oh, Lex authored some paper about masks. I don't even know what the hell they're referring to. I don't care. Um, I always say and mean, I don't care whether someone agrees with me. I care how they treat me. Mm-hmm. And it goes the other way. Because I'll have a lot of people on Twitter who are like, oh, I'm on your team and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't know you. You're not my team. And just because you happen to agree with me, it's of no value to, to me. Like, I don't know you and I'm not interested in knowing you. Mm-hmm. Many of my friends... I don't know what their politics are. I don't care. Like, I care how we hang out, we have a good time, we watch dumb movies, watch YouTube, mm-hmm. go to the store, whatever. Um, I don't know what your politics are. I don't care what your politics are. Um, um, Chris Williamson, who, you know, he's just here. He's going to be moving to Austin. I only learned what his politics are in the last, we've been, we chat like almost every day because he took the world's smallest political quiz mm-hmm. uh, and he figured out what his answers were. I had no idea. He's, he's a communist. He's, well, obviously, yeah. yeah. Uh, Marxist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> Um, so like stuff like that, like it never, and people, uh, I think because politics is often so tribal, especially now, uh, they'll be like, oh, I could never be friends with someone who voted for X. Really? What if they're like grandma worked in that campaign? What if, you know, it's this, you can't think of one steel man argument why this would happen. What if they just want to spite their boss? Um, so I, I don't like that approach at all. It makes no sense to me. Um, we could still have debates. I mean, like, I would still like to have those conversations and still have disagreements. Like, uh, I I disagree with Joe on COVID a lot on a bunch of different things. Very kind of, but it's never like it's not tense at all. It's 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 just it's uh it doesn't have that arrogance that seem a lot of COVID conversations seems to have, like. Uh, talking down to people from bo- both directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, so I would love to have those because I love the debate. I love debates. It takes a lot to get me triggered. And when the Babylon Bee were interviewing Elon and he had this thing, he goes, well, I don't know anyone who wants to, you know, abolish the FDA and the FAA. And I'm standing there <laughs> and I'm shaking and the guys look at me and they're like, oh, we actually have an anarchist here. And the example he used was, you know, look, if playing football... You're gonna have a referee there, and you want the referee, you know. You don't want, but the referee start playing the game is maybe <laughs> such a good thing. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, the referee doesn't work for the state. Yeah, the referee is a private individual working for this organization. Yeah, and there's no reason at all that food quality, which is something crucially important, has to be or can only be delivered through the state and a government monopoly. That's actually really interesting. Just to link on that. Just, 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 just a little bit with the vaccine and stuff like that, with the antiviral drugs, the FDA. So, like, are you comfort? Like, who should be the referee? Right. Like, do you have an idea? Like, what's the best referee for the vaccine? Is it just the market? Just well, let people decide. Th- this is tricky because the thing, the thing that I have not been following COVID as closely as yeah. Joe and, and Sam, as Mr. Harris, excuse me, and Mr. Musk. The point is. When anything like this is developing, there's going to be a lot of misinformation out there, even from the scientists, because it's a dynamic process. They don't know what they're dealing with. A lot of it has to be speculative. They don't know long-term effects because it hasn't been around for a long time. So I think it is very um, dangerous when, you know, when Joe was mocked for taking a laundry list of things under his doctor's advice, 
and they kind of latched onto the, the ivermectin. And then they specifically said it was horse paste, although it's veterinary medicine. So why didn't they say mm-hmm. dog paste or cat paste? It's like, well, he's not dead. So, and he's also taking drugs which are used in other circumstances. At the very least, maybe they're pointless, but if the drug is being allowed for pharmaceutical reasons, the odds are quite low that they're going to have deleterious side effects uh, in general. So I think this kind of insistence that there has to be one A officially approved outcome that we're all doing, that is kind of dangerous thinking in general. By the way, I don't know if you saw, I got a chance to talk to the Pfizer CEO and, uh, I had uh, help collecting questions because I got a lot of questions and people put at the top a question from Michael Malice. Oh, really? No, the um, uh, ask him what he likes best about me. Oh, <laughs> what does he like best? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually had that in my list of questions I was going to ask him. And my plan was I'll, I'll ask him, uh, Michael Malice wants to know what you like best about him. And then my guess was he'd be like, who? And I'd be like, exactly. And then go on to the next. <laughs> but I thought, like, how it was such a tense conversation that I thought there would be no, uh, of course, room for levity. The question I would ask him is Can you acknowledge that there is an enormous incentive for your company to force everyone in America or everyone on earth to be a consumer of your product? Yeah, that's my question. So I dance around that question quite a lot. Like, is uh, I, I'm, I phrase it differently, which is uh, a conflict of interest and attention between making a lot of money. And actually helping people, get the and I mean I've asked a lot of really heavy questions in that, and I still and a lot of people wrote to me with support saying like that was a really uh, great conversation, and a lot of people wrote saying that I mean saying that it was just um, uh, too soft, and it um, I don't know I think about that a lot like how do you have that conversation? I don't think it was too soft. And actually, just for the record, I want to say that they didn't see any of the questions I'm asking. They the they didn't see the final interview. I can ask anything I want. And so so any questions that I asked and and failed to ask is my own shortcomings. Um, also, not being a coward, I was afraid of nothing. Like what? Do, what do I have to gain or lose exactly? Well, you have something to lose because if you're, I do so, only do softballs because if I'm going to make it uh, difficult for someone to come to my show, a lot of people will be disincentivized to do the show because, like, well, I don't need this. I see. Oh yeah, I wasn't thinking like that, but I was. I don't like to. What I think some fraction of folks wanted me to do is to yell at a person, like criticize them, not even ask questions. Yeah, yeah, how dare you? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. yeah. but to me, my goal, my hope is with these conversations is not just to do how great you are, all that kind of stuff, is to bring out some deeper truth. Like the beautiful things is when you can together realize some truth, like you mentioned that, you know, the incentive to, uh, for everyone to take the vaccine is obviously high for the maker of a vaccine. Yeah. Right, and for them to, to arrive at that truth together, like that is a really difficult uh, truth to operate under. Like, for example, I had a whole exchange with him about um, 
This is Jordan Peterson asked this question. I, I use that as a kind of springboard, which is the uh, the the kind of open doors between the FDA, the CDC, and Pfizer. Right. Like some people work at Pfizer and then go to work at the FDA and then vice versa. And I brought up this is my safe space, uh, maybe yours too, just going back to the Soviet Union to look at the lessons of, of uh, human nature and yeah. corruption. And said like, like this, not, so there's two things, this looks bad, and two, this naturally leads to corruption. And I pushed this with several questions, but polite and respectful. And he ultimately said, you know, there's rules. Uh, we There's the rule of law and there's very strict rules about this and we have to follow those rules. Otherwise we get punished severely. And so like his responses, like people reacted to them as like, okay, that's the CEO doing the political, but there's also truth to what he's saying. That one of the beautiful things about America is that the, the you can criticize the rule of law currently, but it's still it's better than in Soviet in the in the Soviet Union where people bribed each other, and but still he made it seem like there's no corruption. People often ask me um, why I describe myself as an anarchist and not a narco capitalist because they think my views are more in line with that school of anarchism. And one of the other reasons you just gave me a good one is that if I am talking to someone who's a major CEO, I am I have that hardcore left anarchist view that this person is, if not the devil, certainly gonna be sinister at the very least. And if you can't say, listen, this happens inevitably with elites. It's, you know, it happens in the universities. It happens in the food industry. There's only so many people at the top of these things. There's a, the field is small and everyone's going to know each other, which is kind of, you know, just the dynamics of any market. That would kind of be more reasonable uh, and just say, it's easy to caricature us because you're not in the boardroom, but we're not, you know, we are trying to produce a product that people want. So unlike the people who criticize me, I was bothered by, I wasn't bothered by most things, but I was bothered by the fact that he didn't show more worry about the corrupting nature of money and power. Like he should, he, if you say that there's no corruption, you should show that because we constantly worry about it. Right. Not because like, look, there's rules. Yeah, and, which are enforced by you. Yeah, exactly. So like, I think the only way to uh, avoid for, for time the corrupting force of power is to freak out about it nonstop. I, the impression I always get from people like him, and I haven't seen the interview and I won't be watching it, is um, they're genuinely convinced they're the good guys. Yeah. And if you're the good guy, sure, corruption is a concern theoretically, but I know this guy at the FDA, I know this senator, sure we disagree, sure they do some things I don't like, but in terms of corrupt, they're not getting briefcases full of money. They're not gonna sell a vaccine that you know kills people in Georgia. So yeah, it's a concern theoretically, but this is 21st century. I, I, the thought process I think writes itself. I, I think, uh, yeah, having the humility, I do this all the time to maybe to a destructive level, thinking that I might be doing bad for the world, I might be wrong, I might be, that kind of thinking is very, you should do at least some of that. Not to a point of being paralyzed, but a little bit. You're actually in the right mindset for me to to ask you then for advice. Okay. You're you're in this compassionate, thoughtful mood. I like it. 
the compassion thoughtful Michael. So f- for future conversations like that, so um, the person that offered a conversation that, that at first I avoided, but I might return to is Anthony Fauci. So there's Anthony Fauci, but then there's also Trump and Biden, things, people like that. Like if you had them on your show, or f- or just giving me advice on how to talk to them, what do you think is the right way to talk to them? And forget about future guests, but like to get at something new, you know, together. Like get at something, not for views or likes or clicks or any of that, but discover something new through the mode of conversation. Well, like let's take those one at a time. So if I had I was talking to Trump, I, I told Ruben to ask Trump this and he didn't. What I wanted to know is what's the look on your face when you're sending these tweets, right? Because I'm imagining him on the toilet with his phone, yeah. right? Are you cracking yourself up? Are you just completely stoic? Are you kind of that Trump little smirk he does? Yeah. So when you get someone to open up about their emotion, about some of their passion about, I think that breaks down some barriers and creates that's a, really good question. A, a, a bond, yeah. But uh, Ruben wouldn't be, that's not his style. Like that's a great question for you to ask. Well, I told him to say Michael Malice. Had oh, Michael Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For Biden, um, that would be a tough one because Biden gets doesn't get enough credit for what a good politician he is. There was this moment people can see on YouTube where Biden is addressing a room full of people and he had someone there and he goes, can you, why don't you stand up so everyone can uh, uh, um, give you a hand? And the guy was in a wheelchair and Biden's like, oh, and like, but instantly he goes, you know what? We're all going to stand up for you. And he made everyone get up and applaud the guy. Yeah. I'm like, that's quick. Yeah. Like, yeah, you made a fool of yourself. So he is a glad hander. In many ways, he's more of a schmoozer than Trump was. Like Trump made the point that he knows all the good people, but Biden knows how to shake hands. Well, I think with both, and sorry to interrupt, with both Trump and Biden, like you mentioned earlier, to me at least, their family is fascinating. The dynamic as a family man, as a father, as a- I, I think that Biden won't acknowledge his illegitimate grandkid is a problem for me. Uh, but at the same time, I can see why he think it's off limits to ask. So that's the thing, when you're dealing with people that powerful, they're not used to having to answer questions, which might be yeah. perfectly nice, but would cause them to freak the hell out. Th- that's the tricky thing of talking to people, as you know, like some, some topics are off limit not in, in that they draw lines, but they just shut down yeah, yeah. when you ask them. Uh, trust me, so I've talked to Elon three times now. You better believe I brought up love. And how, how far do you think that got? And you could just Zero. imagine exactly. One. We, we did, we did uh, exactly the kind of robot back and yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah. And you just like just shut down. So yeah, I, I worry about that with personal. But those that's the thing that makes it fascinating with those two. Because he had... Um, with Hunter and losing his son, like the dynamic of the complexities of all that, like just having, uh, you know, children fuck up in the way children do. And then with Trump, the interesting dynamic with his very different kids and they're all kind of interesting in different ways and maintaining connection with all of them and also letting them flourish individually is fascinating to me. Well, I'd also want to ask Trump if he can name all the presidents in order, which there's no way he can. Yeah. But I'd also want to know all the pre- do you think he knows who the second president of the United States is? Yes. But, okay. John Adams he knows. I think when it gets between Ulysses S. Grant and McKinley, that's when we all screw up. That window, it's tough. Yeah. 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 I'm sure that's the one window where he I mean he he's not he's gonna be able to get back to FDR, no okay. question. I have to my sense was with Donald Trump, and this is not 
I would say a criticism is he doesn't have a depth of knowledge or more importantly, curiosity about history. Yeah, like, but if you're old enough, you're going to at least remember the presidents in your lifetime. In your lifetime? Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. so that's yeah. what I'm saying. He'll get us that from president to FDR pretty easily. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, oh, I, th I thought you meant FDR from the other direction. No, no, yeah, <laughs> from like current <laughs> yeah, yeah. FDR. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, from a political perspective, like having a conversation about politics with those two, um, there is interesting topics, interaction between Donald Trump and Putin, not the interaction, like not the stupid journalistic stuff, but it's clear to me that he is a student of power. Oh, for sure. And like he enjoys the game of power. Yeah. And so it's interesting because it, it, to me, the reason he admires Putin is it's another player in the game of power. And I think why so many people hate him, Trump, is that he demonstrated to a lot of Americans how much of a con job most of politics is yeah. and how people just say what they need to do. But behind closed doors, these people are buffoons and he exposed them as that. I'd also, um, so that the, the, the Biden, I think Biden would be a tougher interview than Trump because I feel like Biden's more slippery in many ways. He's much more of a consummate politician. He's been in the Senate since the early 70s, yeah. since he was like 30 or 35, whatever it was. Um, so, you know, he'd have his little kind of pat answers. There was Larry King, who was certainly a uh, softball interviewer, and, and I don't begrudge him that at all. I remember it was very, very vividly, and it was like, I think it was the 2008 cycle. He asked Hillary, why do so many people hate you? Why do you think so many people hate you? And she just goes like, oh, well, I take tough stances on the, and he, and he cut her off. He goes, other people have taken those stances. Why do they hate you? And she didn't really, I was really impressed with him that he didn't let her off the hook. Um, that that to me is great. But that was, some people say that still is too softball. Cause you, like they would want him to start listing, I don't know, droning, like uh, all the all the things that uh, Hillary Clinton is criticized for. Yeah, but then what she she's done this many times. She's yeah. very good at this. She'll be like, look, I've addressed all these in the past. If you want to start rehashing Republican talking points, you can go exactly. look up my interviews. Yeah, I think it's counterproductive. Yeah. So what about more prescient for me? I can't believe I'm walking through this fire for no good reason whatsoever, but Anthony Fauci. So yeah, let me tell you why I care about Anthony Fauci, because... Um, I care a lot about science and the way science is viewed in society. And um, not to put it at the at the feet of this one person, but I, him and certain members of the scientific community that was responsible for managing the response to COVID, I think are somewhat or entirely responsible for a significant decrease in trust in science. Yes, no question. In the past couple of years. There was a poll that just came out this week that said the number is just collapsed. And if you don't blame him for it, I personally at least blame him for not um, improving the problem. And so there's definitely would be a harsh conversation there to be had. And I think I wanna have it, but how do you do it? It's tough. Yeah, because you know, again, politicians, there's political answers. If you, if they get too frustrated too quickly, they will not explore these difficult things with you. They'll just shut down. Uh, but then, if you say too many nice things, because I, I should also say, Anthony Fauci is an incredible career. Like 
there's uh, several hours worth of conversation to be had about how amazing of a person he is. Well, I would also be curious <laughs> about the aid stuff. Yes. Because that's something he gets criticized about. And I wouldn't come at it aggressively. I would say, let's set the record straight. This is some of the criticism you get, blah, blah, blah. You roll in, in the AIDS crisis. Let's talk about this. And this is something that is important part of American history. There was a pandemic, and it, but it was localized to certain populations. And that, pop, that population at the first, at least, was pretty much told, goodbye and good luck, you're gonna have to deal with this. So how did you deal with that? I mean, were you scared of getting AIDS? You know, so on and so forth. But also there was that comment when, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a Fauci expert, when he basically, they told people not to wear masks or they lied about it to some extent because they said then people were gonna run out of them or something like that. And they admitted they were being inaccurate. I would nail him on that. I'm like, let's address this. Were you being dishonest? Is there sometimes when it's important to be dishonest in service of whatever? Also, I would ask him how, as someone who's not a politician, whether his level of fame and adulation has gotten to his head. How do you have a perspective when, and how does it feel when a sitting senator tells you that you should be imprisoned? Do you think Ted Cruz means it or do you think Ted Cruz is just playing to his base? Yeah, I, I like the fame one. I would love to sneak up. I mean, that's, that question applies to you too. That question applies to me. When you start getting more fame or money or power, are you aware of how that changed you? And like explore that, like how has that changed you? Like if you like in the privacy of your mind, Michael Malice, like how did you change now that you've gotten more attention, let's say, you know, or even the success of the book? Like is it like take take yourself back to the, the you know, you, you talk about the 20, uh, the early 20s, the mid 20s person. How are you different from that person? Are you the same person or right. are you totally different? That's an interesting thought. Is Putin the same person in tw in 2020 as he was in 2010 and then in 2000? It's um, it's a non-trivial almost like... Um, and then the other thing with Fauci is, question. this is a dynamic system. Like on the one hand, he's gonna wanna say we did, got it right every time, right? But then how is that even possible when you're dealing with an evolving, unknown, dynamic situation? When did you guys get it wrong? Did that result in lives lost? Do you feel guilty about that? I mean, the big problem with the masks the changing of mind on, on the mask is the arrogance in how it was communicated. Right. To me, a lot of this boils down to uh, how things are communicated. It's like, it's obvious that you need to change your mind when you get new information. Or sometimes, yeah, you take policies that are like, we know the truth, but we're going to lie for a particular reason, like you have good intentions. But if you're not able to communicate that later, like we made a mistake. Or even ask him, can you understand how a rational person might choose not to get vaccinated. Yes, yes, yes. And if he can't steel man that, then, then that's a situation. That's a good test and I've tried, and some people succeed and some people fail. Is the ability yeah. to really steel man the other, understand that somebody should, would be hesitant about taking the vaccine. Yeah. It's a giant mess, man. Uh, this podcasting is it's, it's just a fun little conversation, but it also has a responsibility. I don't know. I don't know how Joe does it. I don't think Joe cares as much as you do. It's more fun for him in a sense, and he's less concerned about the... I mean, he's not unconcerned with the cultural impact, but for him, it's just more broing out. Yeah. Like, he doesn't do as much prep. He doesn't come in with three pages, single space to, you know, questions. Yeah. And he's, that's he why he's talking to Blair White for 10 minutes about whether sharks lay eggs without knowing. You're the one triggered person. He did. <laughs> uh, maybe he he trolled the troll. 
Well, it worked. He wor- yeah, he did. Do sharks lay eggs? Ooh. I'd like to get an updated 2021 version of Michael Malice giving advice to young people. Okay. So there's, God forbid, uh, high school students, college students listening to you uh, and looking to you for advice. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give them about career and uh, about life, how to live a life they can be proud of? This happens a lot because I have my locals community, malice.locals.com, and there's a lot of young people in there. Yeah. So the, that's a great place. I'll, gi- I'll give them a meta piece of advice. Don't ask your friends for advice because you're an idiot at your age and they're all idiots and they don't want to seem like idiots so they're just going to give you advice they pulled it from the tv and no one knows what you're talking about and it's just gonna be counterintuitive so seek out advice from people who you seek to emulate um, and ask them for advice if you can't get a hold of them figure out a way to get a hold of them Uh, incentivize them in some way Um, you'd be surprised how many people are responsive on twitter or in social media, if you just ask them a basic life question, because then they can quote, tweet, and answer to a whole population. So that would be one mechanism. Um, It's also very hard at that age to realize your parents might not be all that bright, and they might not be all that good people. Um, So that's a hard one at that age to kind of wrap your head around. Just because they love you doesn't mean they understand you. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's, That's okay. We like everybody. Um, Shit, your Trump's pretty good too. I, 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 I'd like your tr- your Trump to talk to Elon <laughs> to have a conversation. <laughs> well, Mr. President, you know, look, uh, some things you did like some not so much, but you know, for the most part, I think the kind of good thing. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. Hey guys, what are you guys, what are we talking about? No, I fuck, I fucked up the Lex. Anyway, so that those would be two pieces. The the other piece of advice I would say is join a gym, or have some kind of quantifiable daily improvement to keep you sane. So the reason I always say weightlifting, and it could be uh, running, it could be jump rope. I don't care what it is. Because if you have those numbers moving in the positive direction, psychologically, if you're dealing with depression or anxiety, it's concrete proof to shut your brain up. Mm -hmm. Because your brain knows how to talk to you. Your brain is often your enemy and it'll say exactly the right thing to undermine you. So that's an issue. Um, B, I just, this works for me. Maybe it worked for most people. I'm very high on the openness metric. Uh, Try new experiences, new things, try things you don't like. it's okay to have a bad experience. You've learned something. So go to a restaurant of a cuisine you wouldn't like or hadn't heard of. Read a book that's popular, but you have no interest in. Um, read a lot. For example, I didn't know anything about the uh, election. What was it? 1892 when there was like a split between the electors. Read a book about it. Oh, I don't know anything. You know, I don't know anything really about Malcolm X. Read a book about him. Uh, you'll be amazed how much more full you become as a person do you see value in writing also like writing down your ideas no i think there's very little value in that i'm not being i'm not joking so reading is where the biggest yeah because you're probably not going to revisit what you've written down um but the act of writing you don't you don't see it solidifies somehow thoughts in your mind not for me it doesn't for you like a tweet will because then then i have to have it narrowed down into like a phrase oh the responsibility of there being an audience no, I just meant in terms of I've got 280 characters. So if, instead of having a meandering thought, meandering thought, I have to codify it in something that's catchy and short. That's a good, useful mental exercise. What face do you make when you tweet? 
I wouldn't know. I don't know. That's a good point. I'll, I, is it on the toilet? How much, what percentage is on the toilet? Very little. On the toilets, I usually more reading. Okay. Um, so even though my tweets are all literally shit, uh, the very few of them are on the toilet. Um, <laughs> They're on a throne. That, that's some advice. Um, don't compare yourself to other people. That's a really dangerous one. All my friends are married. I should have the, I should have a kid by now. Should there's an expression in recovery? Stop shooting yourself. Uh, but it's but it, it should should should. Yeah, it, it's stupid. Yeah. Uh, I also, and this could be my hoarder brain. I surround my house with talismans of joy. So if you have an accomplishment, like when I did Rogan once, mm-hmm. I bought went to the sock store and I bought these orange socks with black cherries on them. And now whenever I wore that socks, those socks, I'm like, oh. This is because I was on Rogan. That was kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. So if you have these little things throughout your house, it's, it gives good mental fuel. Even like like a toy. Remember when I was a kid? Oh, you know what? This little moments that inspire happiness, I think, are visually very useful. Um, so that's another one. Um, and I, by the way, have the that the watch, and um, that because we're talking about twenty twenty one. That was really. Um, the guy in the lecture hall giving you a pat in the back. I wrote, uh, Joe giving me the the watch was um, yeah, it's life changing for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't even. It didn't. The fact that it was on a podcast or whatever doesn't matter. Learn how to uh, um, form boundaries. That's probably the biggest. That's gonna be number one on my list. Because Can you explain? You're gonna have people around you who feel the need that they're entitled to your time, who feel the need to criticize you, and they're not coming from a good place. Yeah. Uh, so it's very good for you to be like, I'm not interested in talking about this anymore right now. Yeah. Uh, even if it's your parents. Even if it's your, especially if it's your parents. Like, I need my space right now. You're entitled to your space. You're entitled to your time. No one owes you. A res- you don't owe anyone a response. Uh, if someone has a question, you don't owe them an answer, especially if they're not coming at you in good faith or yeah. they're coming in a hostile way. Um, that's a big one. Uh, it's hard to learn at that age, um, and um, and and be valuable to those who are around you. Be someone who people are happy to see, and if things are bad, like you're the one that they can rely on. Like I was just uh, you know a little bit under the weather, and I thought to myself, you know what, if things got really bad, I'll call Blair, and she she would take care of me, and and it, that kind of was very reassuring. Mm-hmm. And you can always call me if you need heavy stuff lifted in in a in in an urgent matter because of the robots. No, just me. It's kind of like that's those things that can help with, or you're actually literally bleeding. I'm not a good caretaker. I can save you though. I can murder if you need somebody mur- murdered. Yeah, yeah, do this. yeah, yeah. Um, Wait, what advice would you have to kids that age? And you're all you're a lot younger than you think you are. That's the other one. Like yeah, there's time. I know. You, like it's impossible to understand when you're 26 that your 40s are better than your 30s. Because like, okay, old man, you're that's all cope. I promise you, it is. Yeah, I I think uh, you said so many beautiful things. I I would say another version of the openness. I'll say take big risks when yeah. you're young. Like, yeah. Because if you fail, who cares? You're sleeping yeah. in a sofa. It's not a futon. Who cares? Yeah, and take them often. Yeah. Um, also, this is more a little personal to me. I, I get pushback on this, but I think take big risks and work really hard, like at 
whatever you do. Like, I think you just have to give yourself to a thing. It doesn't have to be in terms of time, but really give everything. So it's not like I'm going to try doing this. I'll try, I'll try. Try with all of your heart. Like really commit yourself. That doesn't mean necessarily hours. That doesn't mean, but like if you fail at doing a thing that you commit to, it should hurt. So like uh, when I competed in jujitsu or you you do like sports and so on, don't just say, I'm gonna have fun out there, so on. No, right. try to win. And that, because then if you don't, it hurts and you learn from that. Um, and then throughout, I think that's the goodness thing is be kind. It's like, some of it is also a skill, allowing yourself to be kind. I found myself earlier in life, I still do this. I find like when I hang out with people, people are often like cynical and negative and yeah, I try to avoid those people. No, but like they, I think everybody falls into that. And sometimes it's the party norm thing. There's a temptation to me to kind of fit in by being more negative than I'm comfortable being. And so um, resist the pressure. I think especially when you're younger, it's not cool to care. The thing that drives, when you're young, if you are a fan of a band, yeah. a writer, a yeah. podcaster, an actor, yeah. and people roll their eyes at you, watch out, those people are dangerous. You should have, it's, if you love Avril Lavigne yeah. with her terrible music, yeah. and she makes you gives you joy, and people crap on you, they're wrong and you're right. So hold on to those things that make you happy, and if people wanna take that away from you, or they, oh, how can you like that? What, those people are not your friends. Why do you have to? Go make life so complicated. <laughs> my, she's my favorite, um, favorite musician of all time, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix second, Avril Lavigne first. Um, thank you for almost bringing a tear to my eye. Uh, you mentioned the shouldos in terms of love, and you should have kids by now. Yeah. I apologize if it's a personal one, but I think at least I have this thought, and not from society, but for myself. Like I want to get married. I want to have kids. Do you feel the pressure of that? Do you want to have kids? I do you, don't want to have kids. You want to get married? I do want to get married. Um, I, this was an issue that I had to kind of work out earlier this year um, in terms of uh, um, the possibility of having kids because I was uh, in a relationship with someone who would have been in many ways literally a perfect uh, mom. So I did my due diligence and I actually sat down with, friends of mine who had kids and I say, give me the downside. Um, like what are the, you did the pros and the cons. Well, the and pros I knew, the pros for kids are very, I, I love kids. I was just with Frank Fleming, he writes for the Babylon Bee and he had his four kids and his youngest son has Down syndrome, which is adorable. Uh, Winchester is so cute. Um, and I always get along with kids very well. Like, the, like I remember very vividly what it was like to be a kid, especially a precocious kid. And I remember how much it bothered me when my parents' friends wouldn't give me attention. So I always make it a point to acknowledge kids, to talk to them, and they're very grateful. And and it's, it's just really fun. Um, especially the people who I'm friends with, their kids are probably gonna be pretty cool. They're not gonna be annoying and you know, kind of ugly and overweight. <laughs> um, so I- uh, I love you got that in there. Okay, good. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry I'll go. But- um, but the so cons, I, the negatives. What, what what was the conversation like about that? Like, what, well, my sister, I talked. My you know, my sister has two kids. My nephews, who I absolutely adore, whatever their names are, and 
she was like she was saying certain things. It's like if I had kids, my kids are in my top priority. Yeah. Like it's not even a question. And I feel like the work I'm doing, and this sounds pompous, but it's true, is a valuable and important, but I'm also the only one doing it. So this is a big cost. And so it's like it would be a major lifestyle readjustment. And I'm at the point where I'm kind of like selfish enough that yeah. I, I wouldn't want to do that. And also it would have to be with the right woman. Like like you're making a commitment, you know, and since, you know, they're all crazy, you have to find one where you can handle the crazy. Uh, all, all women are crazy? Yeah. They're one and a half in a binary world. Oh boy. Yeah. It's not comfortable for me. <laughs> it does, sir. Um. But do you feel the pressure in thinking of that? How much does that weigh on your heart? Like, uh, so, so Elon has kids. Like, I, I feel like I'm. I love everything, and I love stuff I do. I love the, the robot over there, just working with robots. And but I do feel the pressure of like, um, almost like when there's amazing cuisines you never tried or something like that. Like, go out there and, and try it. Like. You need to put in the work and I don't know, um, like life will run away from you, slip through your fingers before you truly get to experience this other kind of love, which is uh, like long-term love for another human being, which is like marriage and then love for kids. Yeah. And um, it almost makes me sad, like not getting to experience that, <laughs> you know, because uh, I'm also really scared of, I've seen so many bad stories on the partner side, like being yeah. with the wrong person. Right. It can, that to me is the, I'm not worried. I have kids all day. In fact, I could probably just have kids without the, the partner. Um, kids I think are incredible. But the, like the, the, the partner, like a wife, it seems like she could then have the negative consequences for like you as a writer on your productivity on your mental ability to flourish of being a joy to others to no, all that, those kinds of things. You know what I that's that couldn't happen because every relationship I've had uh they've been very su beyond supportive. Mm. Like don't they'd rather do the I take an hour and do your work than spend time with me like I believe in what you're doing. Yeah. So I couldn't even casually date someone who didn't believe that, yeah. So that's energizing. Yes. But over time, you never know like how that evolves and all those kinds of things. And for me, I think we're a little bit different. I mean, that has to do with the engineering thing. Sure. I just have to pull insane hours. Yeah, I, so don't, like, I don't. I work the, like two hours a day. But that's what like creatives do. Yeah, like yeah. You, you can only work a couple hours, honestly, to be uh, to be productive and the rest of the time not. I have to do a lot of menial labor. Right. Like, And so there, there's legit tension on terms yeah. of time and attention, all those kinds of things. I don't know. Do you think about this stuff a lot or or do you just love life and, and do cool stuff and whatever happens, happens? I have been so blessed for so long now that I'm at the point where I don't think about it and I'm like, uh, you know, just like miracles happen every day. So just yeah. be open to it. You uh, think about your death, mortality? Yes. Fear? What do you feel about it? I'm just worried. I want to take as many people out with me as possible. So suitcase what's, what's nuke. The best way? Nuke suitcase, suitcase nuke, nuke. I'm thinking. Uh, yeah. No, I I do In think New about, York. I think that would be that would be kind of like ironic, as my other favorite artist. I think about say. my legacy. 
Um, and that's why my books are so important to me. So the, is it, a, you, do you think of it as a kind of immortality? It is though. Like that's who very, you are, is those books. Well, it's not who I am, no, but I mean, like, my legacy certainly is. What do you hope your legacy is? Um, that I encouraged people to be hopeful and that I taught them how to be free. And the, you know, my favorite, sh I think the best show of all time was Dallas, which often gets, a, it was like an 80s soap opera and people conflate it with Dynasty and they think it's trashy and it was very Shakespearean because all the characters are motivated by different values and the, the writing is just masterful and the acting is masterful. And I'm not going to spoil anything. One season ended with one of the characters on their deathbed in the hospital and the whole cast is there and the amount of acting talent in that room is just, you know, just phenomenal. Um, and as the character is dying, they look around and they go, like, please be kind to one another, be a family. And they're yelling at this character, don't you dare die on me, you know? And you could see the actors, you know, because they're losing their castmate who they've had from the beginning. And it would have been a perfect ending to the show, but obviously it's a cash cow, they got to keep milking it. And I think that like kindness and tenderness, and this is Michael Malice talking, it's, there's a lot of people who want to make it that if you are kind or tender, you're going to have consequences, bad consequences. And I think it's important for me at least to create a space in my life that if someone is going to be nice or friendly or kind, that they're not going to have to feel stupid or bad about it. It's we have such a it's such a disincentive like the set of structures so different. Like if you want to be cynical and sneering, like round of applause. But if someone says, "Oh, this is great," like, okay, simp, it's it's really bad. Well, I think you do just this. You do this today. You do this um, in our friendship, and you do it for a very large number of people. Is teach them how to be how to have hope. Yes, and teach them how to be free. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for being an inspiration. I love you, brother. I love you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Michael Malice. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Albert Camus. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Walk beside me. Just be my friend. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.